She was a ricochet heading back at me. She was the full circle nightmare weaved into the thick of my dreams at night. I toss and I turn and I wake up without you at my side. These days, there's a million ways a man can love a woman, but I can't find one way with you. You're the full circle nightmare making all these bad dreams come true. This is Jim Laskowski, uh, formerly a co-host of the Directors Club podcast, uh, now the uh, managing entity behind Now Playing Network over at nowplayingnetwork.net. And of course, every once in a while, I do interviews with Voices and Visions over at voicesvisions.net. But I also wanted to um, preface the official recording with a sincere thank you to all the listeners and uh, fans and supporters of this podcast and the network uh, for 2018 and hopefully beyond. Uh, and also, uh, both Brad and I have chosen our favorite songs of 2018. That was Brad's choice there, a song by Kyle Kraft, and uh, we had Full Circle Nightmare. That was his choice from um, the record, I believe, of the same name. And came out uh, on February 2nd of 2018, and it's a pretty good rockin' little number. Mine is uh, a little more subdued. It is uh, a track by Boy Genius called Stay Down, and you will hear that at the very end of the podcast. Uh, it's a super group consisted of my three favorite songwriters making music today, Julian Baker, Lucy Dacus, and Phoebe Bridgers. All phenomenal, all um, a part of the best show I went to, the best concert of 2018, in which I get to see, I got to see them all play individual sets and then collectively perform their own new material as the group Boy Genius. So I wanted to um, make sure you knew what you were hearing, but for now I want to get to this epic broadcast in which Brad, Patrick, and I all discuss our favorite films and a whole lot more uh from 2018 and we get to read a lot of lists we get to have a great discussion there are some laughs and it's very possible at some point according to patrick i might have turned into my cat which is how this first part ends uh because of the length it is split into two parts so make sure after you download part one to come back for part two yes so here it is enjoy the show Mm, yes thank you Ready? 
Ladies, gentlemen, and those who do not believe in a gender binary, we're back. It's Director's Club. It's the year-end episode 2018 in review. We're actually recording it pretty shortly after 2018 this time. Yeah. Um, it is me, of course, Patrick Rapol, the former host. It is Jim Laskowski, former, ho- former there we, co-host There we as go. Well. We've been doing this for years and years, but someone who hasn't been doing this for years and years is... Brad Strauss, current Directors Club co-host. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but my first time on Directors Club Classic. Yeah. So thank oh, you guys yeah. for having me over for this Vintage. discussion. This is this is canon. Is I think <laughs> this is gonna when the when this is all sorted out later. This is part of Earth Prime, not yeah. Earth Two, like the Francis Ford Coppola episode. The old and the new. That's right. <laughs> Together at last, we're going to talk about. The films of the year. We're going to read lists from listeners that they have sent in. Um, I, well, we'll get into what we thought of the year. In general, I was a little underwhelmed, so I'm not necessarily going to have a ton of enthusiasm. But I'm, I'm with you. On yeah. that. I, I thought it was okay. Uh-huh. But a lot of people, I think yourself, I, I am more bullish uh, on this year, <laughs> especially since the last few years for me have been kind of disappointing. But I, I'm counting like my top three this year are. Canon top three, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. That's that's that really is what it takes. Like I think of like 2013 or 2015 as years where there was just like three movies that I absolutely adored, and I couldn't even t- decide which one was number one. And I got all excited, you know. Like though, that's the that can make a year. You really need uh, like just a just really a couple of movies that stay with you and that you can't shake. Yeah, and I think once we get to our lists, you know, it's it's kind of apparent to me at least that. A lot of them were very strong films, but not necessarily like, at least for me, all-time masterpieces. And I think, you know, it's that's fine. I honestly think it's okay to have a consistently good year of very good movies. I you mean, know? I, I've, I've always thought, like, if, if somehow no more movies were ever made after this point, like, there'd be enough for me. <laughs> like, for the rest <laughs> of, of my life, I wouldn't have any problems. So, like, I don't, I don't rely on new releases uh, for for all the films I watch, but you know, like I was funny. Like I was, I thought last year was kind of disappointing, and I went back and looked at my list from last year, and my number ten was Dunkirk, and I was just like, man, if I had seen a movie like Dunkirk this year, I would have been over the moon. Like I didn't have any experience in the theater like I had with Dunkirk, and that was my number ten. So yeah, I, I went back and listened to that episode and was like, man, Get Out and Dunkirk were like, you know, in my top twenty, but way too low. Like they they belonged in the top ten, which you had, Patrick. Mm-hmm. But I, I guess I, I after rewatching them again and again, I was like, damn, these are great movies. Um, so before we get into our own uh, sort of twenty five best films of the year, we have a bunch of other categories that we're going to go through. Woo! Um, and we have all our lists set up. Is that correct, Jim? You you ready? Uh, yeah, you need a little yeah, time. Yeah. You need me to stall. I could. Well, really quickly, I do have to point out something, Patrick. There's a reason why we're toasting, kind of. Uh, it's it's a bit of a shock when I went back and discovered that it has been eight years. Eight years? To the day. To the day that we started? Yep. Congratulations, gentlemen. The, well, uh, the first Director's Club episode came out on January 2nd, 2011. Mm. And it was all about Mr. Cameron Crowe. And you know what the... Uh traditional eighth anniversary gift is is kino lorber so oh yeah okay so we'll, we'll go back i'll get you one of those uh like roger corman movies they released on blu-ray oh that'd be nice that'll be i think that'll be how we celebrate 
So it, do you think it, we can keep doing this for at least two more years? Yes. The, the tradition here? Yes. Okay. And then quit. And, and then, then quit. Got to yeah. make it to ten. Yeah. If, <laughs> if America can make it two more years, then yes, we can make it two more years. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that is that, we're still that's alive. the real question <laughs> right now. Yeah. Um, sorry, I didn't. I didn't realize that. Yeah, it's pretty. Uh, pretty special. All right then. Yeah, we're keeping this. And thanks to Brad and Al for all their hard work and keeping this going and keeping it alive. Well, it has been so much fun. Yeah. And you know, we you guys were big shoes to fill, but you know, we're doing our best and we're really enjoying it and bringing a lot of uh, guests in. I know Jim, you you've been on a bunch, and Patrick, we definitely want to incorporate you into uh, one of our next year's choices. For sure. Yeah, we'll keep yeah. in touch on that. If you guys if you guys do uh I don't know. Anthony Mann. Renoir, I know that's one. John Renoir is one I like John Renoir is someone I just want an excuse to watch all of his films yeah. cuz it's hard <laughs> yeah. like I it's hard for me to like get really enthusiastic about foreign film uh because it's easier to not watch. So, like, I would like to be on an episode of John Renoir just so I can have an excuse to finally watch, you know, like Human Beast and all that. Yeah. Um, but we should get into our categories. Okay, let's do it. Because there's a lot to cover, yeah. as always. Hopefully, this episode won't be nine hours long, but we'll <laughs> see. You know, it's, it's fine as to be seen. Yeah. A two parter is not unprecedented. No. And <laughs> in, in fact, is the norm. Okay. Want to begin with. Hardest you laughed in 2018. Uh, okay, I'll start uh, the Scorpion Bull story in Blind Spotting. Oh, uh, yeah. Blind Spotting is a movie of great comedy and great drama, and like I think the thing that makes that movie special is the way it combines the two. For sure. And like that is a harrowing story that is like it's sort of like the worst thing that ever happened to the main character in his entire life, and yet the way that the the way that uh, David Diggs and I forget the other actor who's also the co-writer, the way they frame the story in the mouth of the guy who just sort of this was this bystander who saw the whole thing and it was just a hilarious story to him is so brilliant. Yeah. And the 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 two guys who I think I think are like he's like telling his boyfriend or whatever about this, you know, event outside the bar and it was just the, the weird asides and everything. It's so funny. I could not stop laughing that entire time despite it being like <laughs> pretty sort, really sort of yeah, harrowing. Yeah. How about you, Brad? Well, I'm also going to go with something that's uh, not a pure comedy, but definitely has really strong comic elements, which is Sorry to Bother You. Yeah. And I could uh, say this spoiler-free because it's in all the trailers, is this white voice thing the characters have going in the movie is pretty hysterical. Now, there's a lot of the movie that's more serious and more allegory. But when you start getting these badly dubbed, I think uh, David Cross and Patton Oswalt yeah. uh, in, into the characters' mouths. And the Lily effect, James. That's for, right. Uh, what's her name's uh, white voice, yeah, which I thought right. was a really brilliant touch. Yeah, no, for sure. And uh, that there's, there's a moment where he's like, Spin Doctors, classic. <laughs> it kills me. But. Yeah, I mean, every time they bust that out, when, even when uh, Danny Glover does it, it's just so funny. Yeah, it is very funny. That whole movie has some huge laughs. For me, I went with uh, a combination of Jesse Plemons and Rachel McAdams in Game Night. I think there are several moments involving either of them that made me laugh hysterically, but certainly... Can you narrow it down to Jesse one? Jesse Plemons uh, holding a puppy yeah. in the driveway... And uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> just like you know, his deadpan delivery of everything and the whole uh, three for one Frito Lay special. Mm-hmm. That whole exchange is just beautifully timed and very funny. Uh, Game Night definitely one of the funniest movies of the year for, for sure. sure. For sure. 
and a surprise too. Okay, what's next? Best, I, I, you know what? There are some categories I didn't have one for, so I'm not convinced <laughs> that I have the full list. So you better say the next category. Okay, best use of a song. All right, I am still going to go with the Scorpion Bowl story. Uh, when the guy telling the story turns to his boyfriend and goes, would you mess with this dude? His boyfriend goes, no, he looks like Crazy Bone. And then Mr. Sawed Off Leatherface by Crazy Bone starts playing. <laughs> that might have been the actual moment in that story that was the hardest I laughed. Makes sense. Um, yeah. as, as, a, as a person who enjoys Crazy Bone. Well, my song is a jazz instrumental, which I'm still considering a song. And it is from the South Korean film Burning. Ding! We have a match. Indeed. Yes. There is a, a one. It, it, this, oh, I should say the song. The song is, I hope I pronounce this right because um, it seems to be French, uh, Generique from Miles Davis. Mm-hmm. And what, what's the moment? This is the moment when uh, the woman part of the love triangle uh, has some uh, marijuana and <laughs> it affects them <laughs> really well. <laughs> and she basically. I feel started- like I'm on inside the actor's studio. <laughs> like, like the, most, the most intentionally dorky way of saying that. All right, let's go with it. <laughs> yes, the weed. Yeah, is, the devil's uh, lettuce. Is, yes, and um, and she is so into the moment. And this is the part of the movie where the really the three sides of the triangle are bonding in as much as they can and she kind of goes into this trance and dances and takes her clothes off Mm -hmm. and it's done to the miles davis song and the effect is really lyrical it's definitely the high point of the movie for me did you know the song beforehand i did not yeah Mm -hmm. i I didn't even occur to me that it wasn't part of the score um, it's 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 integrated like so plainly and like so perfectly. Uh, like I didn't realize this yeah. would even be considered best use of a song. Yeah, definitely one of my favorite moments of the year for sure. Uh, but also, I guess honorable mention goes to "Rock Around the Clock" in Cold War, hmm. which uh, is a song I hadn't thought about in a very long time. Then it's used in this you know beautiful um, love story that takes place in 1950s Poland, and uh, yeah, there's just there's a lot going on in that movie, and we'll talk about it more. <laughs> Um, I have not uh, seen Cold War. I, I'm going to say, like, I, in previous years, I've like had a list of movies I haven't seen. Your list of shame. I, I that is too long. This year, <laughs> so I'm just going to mention when a movie comes up that I haven't heard that I haven't seen. Yeah. I'll, I'll just mention it. Although we're going to go into spoilers in case that oh, has, yeah, that hasn't course, been clear. We're just going to go into mm-hmm. full spoilers this this whole podcast. So I also haven't seen Cold War. Yeah. It hasn't opened in Chicago yet. I think you probably what, saw it at the festival. Yeah, yeah I saw it at the festival and, mm. you know, screen. I got inundated with screeners this year. It was like crazy. It was like double the amount I got last year and I couldn't keep up with everything. Mm. It was silly. <laughs> but next up we have best line of dialogue. All right. I'm going to, I'm still going with blind spotting. Uh, when their friend who drives the Uber pulls up and goes, what that boat do? <laughs> it, it made me so like that. That also is closest to hardest. I laughed. And that is something that me and a lot my of partner, great dialogue in that movie. Me and my partner have been shouting what that insert noun do uh, to each other since we saw that movie. It's, it, it is, it's just so wonderful. That whole sequence is wonderful, but that line, especially, I'm going to go to the very end of, I love that I can say this, the new Orson Welles film, yeah. The Other Side of the Wind. And uh, the spoiler warning uh, ensues, because this is what happens at the very end of the film, and it's John Huston says this line in regards to uh, his feelings about 
filmmaking and the people in his life, which is you shoot the great places, pretty people, all those girls, boys, shoot them dead. Ooh. That makes a lot more sense in the context of the film, and it's a very cool uh, moment that gives me shivers. Uh, that's on my list of shame. I will catch up with it soon. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't catch that one? No, I did not. I I really wanted to see it on the big screen, but it was like it played the music last for like a week or something. Two screenings, I believe. Oh, two, oh just got. two screenings. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Netflix. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'll catch up with it on Netflix. I'm sure. But it's just it's frustrating that like when Netflix owns a thing, that means it will never get like a nice Blu-ray version. Like, there's a lot of Netflix movies that I just get real mad about. I can't imagine that being the case for Roma. I just—it's possible. I mean, I mean it's I'm not, sure it's, it's possible. not necessarily true, but like, it's very possible they will just never release that on Blu-ray because most of their movies and TV shows never get any kind of physical media release. Sad but true. But yeah. Roma is getting a little bit of special treatment Thankfully. from Netflix, uh, probably because they want the Oscars. Yeah, and it it is going to be at the Music Box uh, for about five days uh, in, a, in another week or so. Yeah, I have not seen Roma yet because I am waiting to see it in 70 millimeter. Um, so we'll have to check that out then. What is the next uh, category? Well, I have to reveal my line of dialogue. No, you don't. Which, okay. no one cares, Jim. I know, Let's nobody cares. I don't okay, know. go ahead. Uh, I've had nightmares that made more sense than this from Death of Stalin. There's a lot in that movie <laughs> that's mm. quotable, <laughs> as it is with most of. Uh, is it in your wait? No, that's what, who's the Armando guy? Iannucci. Iannucci, yeah, he's he's kind of the master at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot in the favorite too, for sure. But uh, I, I, for some reason, that line kind of summed up 2018 for me. <laughs> there's just a lot of crap, a lot of craziness going on. Um, both politically, sociologically, and personally. So I've, I've definitely integrated that line into my life. I've, I've had nightmares that have made more sense than this. Mm-hmm. Our next category would be Best Acting Newcomer. So I'm, <clears throat> I actually didn't check this ahead of time. So mine is either Thomasin McKenzie from Leave No Trace. That's I don't mine. Know, is, that, is that her first movie? I believe so, yes. Okay, so no. it's it's... I, I still haven't decided. It's either her or Lady Gaga, which I guess Lady Gaga doesn't technically count, but like Machete Two is not really like <laughs> uh, doesn't require what I would call acting, really. Yeah. Um, and I was very impressed with Lady Gaga in A Star Is Born. Um, it's so a good choice. One of those two would be it. So I will go with Yalitza Aparicio from Roma. She is the lead character, the the family maid, and has much of the screen time and is unforgettable. For sure. I believe this is her first film and what she does in it is is so natural, gets you so into the drama of the film that I think she deserves all the credit in the world. Excellent pick. I I concur. Um, Best ensemble? Uh, Shoplifters. It's like, no question. There's shoplifters and then there's a hundred blank spaces and then there's the next movie. Like, shoplifters ensembles, so incredible. That's a great choice. Yeah. That would be my second choice. Yeah. It, it is a great choice, and I'm just going to copy it from okay. you because that <laughs> is also my choice. Because uh, there, there is no real lead here. You're no. looking at all, this whole family, and from the children to, to the grandmother, and everyone is just equally fantastic. And, for, and it's so important for that movie because that movie is so much about challenging how you feel about any given character at any given moment. And, like, do you... Is, are, is this a good person? I don't know if they're a good part. Like, 
Like, it really challenges you, and because there is no lead, there's no point of view that you're always identifying with. Mm-hmm. Every single person, you see where they're coming from when they are the focus of any given scene. And it makes that movie much more challenging because of it. And the child actors uh, stand right up with the adults. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. for sure. Yeah, that that was a highlight for that film. I also want to give a special mention to Support the Girls, which I just thought... That was ev- a very good ensemble. Ev- everybody in that movie stood out in a very different way. Yeah. And uh, it's definitely one of the most memorable casts uh, compiled this year. We got most nail-biting Was that your number one was... Support the girls. Yeah, okay. and, and sure. I'm, I'm I'm definitely with you on shoplifters. It hadn't occurred to me until you said it. Yeah. <laughs> so we have most nail biting moments. Uh, I have three that I couldn't decide between. One is Colin walking home with a gun in his pocket and blind spotting, mm. and the cop sort of stops and just starts fucking with him. That's a good one. And because at that point the movie had very much, you know, proven it. Like he could get shot dead. Like that, the movie, it's towards the end of the film. I fully believe that could have been the end of the film or, you know, something else terrible with the cop discovering the gun that he has taken from his best friend that is that is in his pocket. So, like, that scene was absolutely, you know, just heart-stopping. There's another scene that kind of goes for the same thing that I didn't think worked as well, which is the little kid finding the gun. I thought oh. that was a little, like... It was a, lean, a little convenient, yeah. Little, like, he, the kid's, like, putting his eye right in it and saying yeah, it's a yeah. little much. It was. Um, so there's that. Um, this one is just, like, a really great theater moment, which was the moment in the uh, sequel, Halloween, where Michael Myers, where the baby is crying after he has killed the baby's oh, mother. Right, yeah. And Michael Myers is walking right up to the baby. I could just feel the entire <laughs> audience, like lean way back and get really anxious that Michael Myers was going to kill the baby. And of course, Michael Myers is not going to kill the baby. But for a second, everyone in that theater, including me, believed that Michael Myers could kill that baby. I sure did. And that was fucking great. Uh, And then there is the shootout uh, in Hold the Dark, which I think was just like an immaculately staged uh, sort of action sequence that was very scary and very tense. That would be my best action sequence of the year, for sure. (laughs) Well, I was... Always, in this case, going to go with something from Hereditary, because that is a movie that keeps you on edge and uncomfortable the entire way through. Yes. Probably uh, the scene that most nail-biting is the one near the end that leads to the climax and starts with a seance. Mm, that's a great choice. Uh, I mean, there's, there's, I think this one might be just a tad overrated, but at the same time... There's no denying the fact that when I saw this, you know, in IMAX, uh, Mission Impossible Fallout, the helicopter sequence. It's very good. Kind of blew me away. Yeah. I mean, I I think there's great action sequences in the film. Uh, Some cliche kind of tropey stuff that didn't sit well with me, especially seeing it a second time. But that helicopter sequence, by far, I mean, I was I was grabbing my chair with that one. Was well, interesting that you, you you give that. I mean, yeah, obviously that was very tense and nervous. Like made you, you know, and it was a very nail biting moment for you. When I saw that film, that to me was like the one moment where the action and the comedy meshed well. Like, <laughs> yeah. there's a weird sequence where Ethan Hunt is like trying to be a badass and he just fails to be. Sure, like he tries to do like a action movie guy one liner when he drops the boulder and then the boulder just misses and then he. Tries tries to do another action movie guy one-liner when he pulls up next to him and the guy just pulls out a giant machine gun and it's like <laughs> it's this like I like my main problem with Mission Impossible Fallout was there weren't enough of those kind of 
like bits of personality and character. Yeah. yeah um, I, I think Ethan Hunt is kind of a, I mean, I haven't seen the two previous films, so maybe there's just like a ton of backstory that's important that I'm missing, but like he felt very blank to me in this film. But like that would to me was like, Oh, that's hilarious. That's what this whole movie should have been. It should have been funnier. Yeah. I didn't, I wasn't, I never thought of it as like tense necessarily, though. It's obviously like a well done action sequence. Oh, it is. Yeah, for sure. Now, Every year we come across this with Best Director. Now, mm-hmm. if your choice for Best Director gives away your number one film, should we reveal it? Or I don't. I, we all we, come, we do this every year. It's one of those things where, like, Best Director, or Best Editing. Like, I don't know if I can honestly say because, like, I don't know what the director was like on set. I don't know what choices <laughs> are the directors versus the screenwriters versus the actors versus whatever. Like. So, like, the best guess I can have for who the best director is is just the person who made my favorite movie. So I always abstain. I, I think I'll abstain as I well because that takes us right to the top of the list. I yeah, agree. Yeah. That's yeah. fine. That's totally fine. So let's go with best actor. Uh, David Diggs from Blindspotting. Excellent I, You know, I'm not a millionaire, so I have not seen Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, this was my introduction to David Diggs. And that movie has a lot of tonal shifts in it and... He is like part of like a huge reason why that movie works is because uh, he sells all of them. He is a really gifted comic actor and he's a really gifted dramatic actor. And he can find those two sides of the same person in the character of uh, Colin like really well. So I think David Diggs was my favorite actor of this year. And my favorite is Ethan Hawke from First Reformed. We have another match. Uh, it's mm-hmm. a film that I didn't like as much on the first viewing, but I was also very sick when I first saw it. Uh, I like it a lot more, especially now that I was able to understand it, <laughs> at least at least have a little bit more clarity. And, uh, yeah, I, I've always been an Ethan Hawke fan. I know a lot of people haven't been, but uh, this is by far his best performance, I think. Well, I'm kind of used to loving him in Richard Linklater yes. films. Yeah, for sure. And then he was also great in The Devil Knows You're Dead. But oh, yeah. kind of like you, I, I kind of have these you know memories of the douche from Reality Bites. And I'm like, do I really want to be following this guy? <laughs> he has a, but- <laughs> has a thing where he, like, he has bad taste in projects. <laughs> like, he gets himself in really dull, like dramas all the time like i think what's that born to be blue or whatever that yeah that was all right and like i thought that was really bad like he he finds himself in just these like really uninteresting roles all the time so when he finds an interesting movie like first reformed it's always very nice to be reminded like oh yeah no that guy can definitely act oh and it's such a tricky role and he has to hit a lot of different notes and he he hits them all perfectly yeah the tone of the film is very tricky to get correct um because it is not exactly naturalistic but it's not a big flashy like loud performance either right Let's go with Best Actress next. I don't uh, gender acting category, so I abstain. Okay. The best actor of any gender this year for me was David Diggs, so I didn't, I didn't think of a, another one. I'll, I'll just take the moment, though, to bring up uh, somebody else whose performance blew me away, which uh, Tony Collette from Hereditary. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, again, you have a horror movie and, and a director who knows how to do suspense, how to do scares. But you also need that emotional involvement. And through an ever-increasing level of paranoia and hysteria, Toni Collette balances her role as a mother with what she's facing with her losses. And even though the movie uh, is constantly kind of coming at you with something, you're always relating to her and what she's up to. 
Agreed. Um, I went with Regina Hall from Support the Girls. Who- I was wondering. <laughs> you stopped by my work uh, like about a month ago, and we were talking about you needed to fill it's- out your Chicago Film Critics ballot, and we were discussing so whether or not it would be Tony, Tony Coletta or Regina Hall. And I just, I mean, again, watching it again really helped bump it up, but also just highlighted how she carries the entire film, but not just... You know, with her incredible acting, but she carries that whole crew, you know, mm-hmm. as, as, as a character. And you really get to experience just the ups and downs of running an entire restaurant, but also yeah. trying to balance your work or with your real life. And I mean, she just does it so naturally and so realistically. It's like, I, I know people like this. I, I think when films, put, particularly Hollywood, but even indie films are guilty of this, when they try to depict low-wage, blue-collar life, they always err on the side of masculine jobs like yeah, Mark yeah, yeah. Wahlberg and Deepwater Horizon or something <laughs> like that. It's always like a guy... It's always like fucking Denzel Washington, like going to ride to drive the train, being like, <laughs> "I'm just a regular guy. I don't know." And like, they're like the actual like face of low wage work in America in 2018 is a lot closer to something like Regina Hall, absolutely. And there's a there's a factor of like emotional labor that is what the film is really about that she carries so amazingly well, and it's like it's such a great character, but. It's one of those things also where it's like Regina Hall's always been good, but she's just been in a lot of bad movies. Yeah, she's been in a lot of goofy so it's comedies. So like it's, like it's easy to not realize Regina Hall is good. Yeah, no, she's um, Because she's just in like Best Man Holiday or whatever. Like, I don't know. I don't, she may not actually be in that, but like yeah. the kind – it's just – there's a lot of uninteresting roles that she has been in and that one she really nails it. Absolutely. Best Supporting Actor? Uh, I think – I uh, went with Thomas and McKenzie in Leave No Trace. Uh, I think that that movie is it's it's a very interesting performance because she's a first time actor, uh, at least on film. And a lot of the times, first time actors, like especially younger uh, roles that are good, they sort of err on the side of just not being too emotive. Mm. Um, and she has that obviously, but like. She has these little glimpses where she reveals like an infinite well of vulnerability yeah. that make that entire movie work. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a performance that doesn't call attention to itself. No, it's, not at all. It's but really it's, internal, but yet. You but are. like, uh, pretty much every time she sort of like she, so much of that movie is her going with the flow, uh, when, even when the flow is insane. Like when it's because she just has no frame of reference for how things are supposed to work. And once she starts getting glimpses of how things are actually supposed to work, and she starts sort of revealing that she has her own desires that, you know, uh, diverge from her father's, like, those moments all made me cry. <laughs> like, yeah. like, actually, like, a good uh, a, a good runner-up would be Sam Elliott in A Star is Born, who had a similar thing where, like, Sam Elliott's in the movie for maybe seven combined minutes, but he made me cry almost the entirety of <laughs> when he's on screen in oh, A Star is sure, Born. Yeah, that's a great choice. Uh, for that, I will go back to Burning and Stephen Yun. Yeah. Um, yeah. He has a really tricky role because we we basically don't like him he's kind of the the yuppie uh rich rich guy who's uh coming in on our uh couple that we're trying to identify Mm -hmm. with 
And as he goes on, you, you, he, you know, he plays the unlikability, but as the film goes on, he, he shifts to a little bit more mysterious mode where you're like, well, I mean, he, kind of, he means well here, but you're also suspicious. And so we have to feel different ways about him through different parts of the movies, and he helps us do that. Agreed. And uh, uh, again, watching this one for a second time bumped it up, and just any time... He's looking through that glass. Um, uh, sorry, Stephen James in If Beale Street Could Talk. I'm I'm kind of a wreck whenever he like mm-hmm. is being openly vulnerable and you know expressing all his feelings and emotions for this you know the the woman that he loves even though he's incarcerated and. He doesn't again overplay things. It's you know it could be this really like it's not like Midnight Express where you're cry you know he's crying his eyes out or anything. It's really you can sense him wanting to just have this catharsis, but he keeps holding back emotion. But I just think his facial expressions say so much in this film, and he's also new to me. I don't know if he's been in anything before, but I just I really he has. But yeah, but it's just I, I mean he's not in the film a whole lot, but when he is, he does make a really strong impression. As does the. Uh, the, the the lead actress too. Uh, he was in Selma, as a matter of fact. Oh, really? Okay. Um, not a huge role, I don't believe. But anyway, uh, what's just the next a great actor category? Uh, it's best supporting actress, and um, I'll, I'll go with um, with Emma Stone in the favorite. I think she really impressed me. Yeah, it's been. A, I really really liked Emma Stone when I saw. I saw Easy A. Yeah, and I didn't I saw, like her. <laughs> I I saw The Rocker, which was a terrible movie that she was really funny in. And then I was like, oh, huh. Like, I, I, it always catches my attention when uh, someone is good in a bad movie. Um, and I thought she was really good in The Rocker. And then, like, since then, she has been in nothing that I've really found that interesting. I didn't see La La Land. Maybe I would like it, but it just didn't seem like my thing. It's not. Yeah. It's a little overrated. <laughs> you know. It's, it's a little overrated. Yeah. But I just, she really impressed me in, in The Favorite more than recent roles that she's had. And again, like, she's, you know, kind of. Not necessarily carrying the movie because we have Olivia Coleman, we have Rachel Weiss, but she's our main introduction into this world, and I, I feel like every step of the way, you you don't know exactly what her what cards she's laying on the table. I think she's really good at being, um, you know, just c- contrasting actions with her uh, delivery of things. So I I just love her, love her more. Sadly, the favorite is on my uh, walk of shame list okay. no because problem. it's it's the one I haven't gotten to that I, I wanted to. But what's her she, character in Beale Street? She is the mother. Okay, uh, yes, of of uh, the the young lady in the, uh, the romance, and when her when the young lady's fiance is arrested for a crime he didn't commit, and she has to she go, goes all the way to Puerto Rico to try to save this man to save her family and she has such a fierce sense of independence about this and every scene she's in she uh, dominates the film and you know I, I i did look at her imdb and that that she's actually been around for a while oh, but yeah, but this yeah. was really the first time i said whoa this is somebody to watch yeah regina king is great Everybody, everybody's acting in that movie is pretty impeccable. So now we have best score. Um, so my best score of 2016 was Nicholas Bertel's Moonlight, and my best score of 2018 is Nicholas Bertel's score for If Beale Street Could Talk. And <laughs> we have a match. very, very similar, um, but like like 
Beale Street and Moonlight, they are different as well. There is, it, it's an expansion. It's really interesting. It's this motif that keeps repeating. And the whole movie is very uh, sort of expressionistic. And, you know, it, it's all these flashes of, you know, back and forth in time and different moments. And it's sort of this single emotional journey uh, that is sort of tied together by the music. And I just thought it was incredible. Could not agree more. Yeah. I uh, absolutely love that score. And, uh, it's it's when that first opening shot of that movie, I was like, this this is I already love this score, <laughs> you know. I mean, just that uh, just watching them walk together and with that music playing, that really sort of melancholy but also heartwarming music, you know. It's like it's find that right balance, and I think it sort of contrasts again, like oh, these people are clearly in love, but there's some darkness underneath it, and I think the music reflects that beautifully throughout the whole movie. Well, it was a beautiful score. It I'm going to choose Terrence Blanchard, who did uh, the oh, score yes, for Black yes. Klansman. It's kind of an unusual score because the main theme that's, that I remember the most is is kind of a guitar solo mm-hmm. played above some uh, classical-sounding uh, backgrounds. And it's very evocative. And for a movie that has to change its tone from comedy uh, to drama to suspense just on a dime, this score grounds everything. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I like that choice, actually. Mm-hmm. I think he's, you know, him and Spike Lee just work really well together. Yeah. What other mm-hmm. scores did he do for Spike Lee? I would think 25th Hour, for okay. sure. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's it, a great it score. It looks like yeah. he did most of Spike Lee since at least Crooklyn. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um. All right, what's next? Best screenplay? Best screenplay, blind spotting. It's really hard to do comedy. It's even harder to do comedy that is rooted in characters and themes. It's even harder to find a balance between comedy and drama. Um, And I think blind spotting just nails it all. There's just like a few moments that sort of overstep and overreach and don't quite work. But all in all, I think it's just like a phenomenal first time, especially like as a first time screenplay. I just think it's incredible. We have another match. All right, there we go. <laughs> and I'll again defer, but I mean not disagree, but just choose a different one with uh, Black Klansman again because, sure. and for the exact same reasons as the score, it's the varying tones and how this script has to take you on a journey that is on one level believable story wise to comedic funny as hell in moments Mm -hmm. and then also circles in on itself to make some really larger and important political points indeed how about best cinematography you know i think this was a hard one like i i the, the part of the problem with these categories is we get them at the end of december and so I haven't been going through this whole year like marking down and so I like I'll think back at movies I saw in March and be like what did that did that look I think probably I'll have to go with If Beale Street uh just cuz to me like that movie like the memories I have of that film are of the score and of the colors and of the the images and the lighting and sort of the really delicate balance it plays with being Sort of a larger-than-life melodrama, but just also really grounded and human. And I think uh, I thought the cinematography in Moonlight was really good, and I thought it was better in If Peel Street Could Talk. I would agree with that. What would be your well, choice? Because it might be a match. Who knows? It, it, it might, but it isn't. <laughs> it, it is uh, a film whose look, among all other things, blew me away. It's Roma. 
and uh, Alfonso Caron was, in addition to the director, also the cinematographer. It is this gorgeous, high-definition, black and white. Everything is so vivid in the film. It, it, it's about a time and place. And really, from the very beginning, you get to know it intimately. And mm-hmm. the visuals are, are doing these small things, but they're also creating an epic atmosphere as well. It's one of the most gorgeous films I've seen in years. I would agree with that 100%. I mean, I kind of knew from the opening shot, I'm like, well, I, I kind of, this is going to be a special movie to look at, especially, you know, on the big screen, which, you know, again, I'm not going to make that argument of like, you need to see it this way, you need to see it that way, you know, because... I will say are- the way to not see it is to <laughs> own a small television and a bad internet connection and try to watch it on Netflix because it is a film of almost zero close-ups and so much of it is the fine detail of the cinematography of that house and if you, like me, have a small TV and a bad internet connection, you do not get that. And like that's, I watched the first 45 minutes of that film on Netflix and then said, you know what, I'll wait for it to be at the music box. Smart I, I think you made the right decision. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to be that guy. See, if you can, if in any way possible, see this movie in a theater. It'll still be brilliant on your, your TV, but it's an entire other level of brilliance when you're dealing with not only the cinematography, but the sound design. Yes. Mm -hmm. Couldn't agree more. How about the worst film of the year? Uh, I will watch pretty much any mainstream Hollywood horror film, even the really terrible ones. I tend to enjoy in some way just because I just find the sort of the course of horror and like the way it changes with the culture. Interesting. Um, Slender man is the rare (laughs) film that I just could not really enjoy at all. The one glimmer of fun I got out of it was that it reminded me of Wes Craven's uh, My Soul to Take, oh. which is a, another bad film. But that's, a, very bad. that's an interesting bad film that I kind of like watching, but mm-hmm. it has the same kind of look and feel and just like ridiculously somber tone connected with absolutely nonsensical material. It's, like, it's, kinda, it's the kind of movie that feels like it was just destroyed by reshoots or something like mm-hmm. that. But, yeah, that's the worst movie I saw this year was Slender Man. Understood. Well, for me, it was What the Hell Happened with A Wrinkle in Time. Ooh, yeah, that's a good choice. That was a bad movie. And it's bad for a lot of different reasons. I mean, it's bad, first of all, because there's a shot of a giant Oprah in which people are looking at her in awe, godlike, and it wasn't even a well-done shot. (laughs) If it's not well done, that's one thing, but I can can get behind a godlike Oprah. (laughs) (laughs) But more than that, there is some very weird, incompetent filmmaking going on, and, and, and I have all kinds of respect for Ava DuVernay from her documentary, uh, The 13th. I didn't get to see Selma yet, but I want to. But yeah. she was doing, I think she was just uncomfortable in this genre. She did something odd, and I was getting a headache as I was watching this. Mm. I was asking myself, well, why, why is this happening? And then I realized. This film is nothing but close-ups. She is cutting from close-up to close-up to close-up over and over and over again. I'm like, oh my God, you have to vary this. This this is not working. (laughs) Yeah. And Reese Witherspoon, I don't know what she was doing in that movie, but it was really obnoxious. Right. I mean, and and it's a lovely children's book that I remember from my childhood. And and, and there's lots of, of great moments to to take advantage of and it seems like she misses all those opportunities so you mentioned incompetent filmmaking and I just want to say 
Um, I think deep down, the worst film I saw this year was Puppet Master: The Littlest Reich. But I have to I have to go on record as to say that I absolutely despised Vice. Um, I think Adam McKay doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> I, I with was the not, camera, no. With the camera, no. The, there's so much. Like the editing is so clippy, and the camera is always shaky. And he, you know, he just like cuts to this weird like meta voiceover thing with Jesse Plemons. That I just, I mean, there's so many weird choices that made no sense to me. And he thinks he's being clever, and he thinks he's being funny, and he thinks he's like, and then oh god, don't get me started on the closing credits. <laughs> but it's just really uh, like throwing it in your face for your political stance. And also just kind of a mean movie. I mean, I don't know if he's just trying to reflect the mentality of Dick Cheney to the point of like being that off-putting, mm. uh, but it was just, I just, I hated every frame of that movie. And I, I know people put it on their top ten list, and I'm just like, okay, clearly you had a completely different experience, but yeah, it hate, made me angry. I hated The Big Short. The Big Short's the one that made me angry, because I love Adam McKay, the comedy writer. Oh, yeah, I yeah, love yeah, yeah, Adam yeah. McKay's sensibility. I love... The work that he does with Will Ferrell, like Step Brothers, is one of my all-time Same. favorite comedies, and he was always political. When he made Anchorman, it was political, but sure. like he was political in a sphere that he was completely comfortable with and knew how to make it work. And so when he does this satire of you know masculinity and, and sexism in the workplace and stuff like that, like it's not deep, no, but like it works because the rest of the film around it works. And then, like, as his films... The uh, the other guys had those closing credits. The other credits. guys had those, like, yeah, the, the, like, inconvenient truth closing credits. Right. And you're like, oh, what do you think you're... Who do you think you are? And then The Big Short, I thought, was just absolutely terrible. So, well, like... That's the, Vice is amplified. Yeah. I did not opinion. see Vice. I did not see Puppet Master Little Strike. And I did not uh, see Wrinkle in Time either, uh, just to say. But, yeah, I'm not surprised. Cause... So you, you won on all three counts. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You lucked out. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I probably mentioned this back when we talked about the big short if we talked about the big short on one of our year end episodes sure before but like to me Adam McKay is the guy uh, in Sullivan's Travels who is like wants to make important movies and he doesn't realize that he was already making important mm. movies mm. Uh, like he it's it's he thinks he is the only one who sees what's happening. And it's like, my dude, we all fucking, like, you can't fucking miss it. Like, yeah. what do you think? You think you're blowing our minds with this story about Dick Cheney? Like, where were you fucking 15 years ago? <laughs> I know, ago? that's exactly it. I mean, it's 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 like the worst tendencies of Oliver Stone. Yeah. Like, and that's all Adam But even, does. like, Oliver Stone made W when W was still in office. You know? yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. Like, yeah. at least Oliver Stone is has a little bit of, of teeth, uh, even yeah, late, even no, late yeah. career Oliver Stone has just like a little bit of teeth. Right. I and didn't get a chance to see this one either. Uh, judging from this, I'm not not in any rush. You don't have to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, but there are people who love it, and there are people who like you know call it really uh, interesting satire, and there's good acting in it. Obviously, Christian Bale does what he does really well, and you look. I mean, transformative in the trailer. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. No, I mean it's it's and Sam Rockwell's kind of funny as you know uh, George H uh, W Bush, but nah. nah. Okay, it's so just George W. Or George W. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Um, so we have most promising discovery. Now I'm a little unclear as to I think we said the talk last year. Yeah. Yeah. It could, be, have, an, it could have, be an actor, it could be a director, okay. it could I be have, anything. I have three then. Uh, the director of Angels Wear White, Vivian Q. She's made one feature film before. Oh crap, um, I forgot to put that on my list. Uh, <laughs> I just realized. Really? That. Yeah. 
Oops. Because okay. I just watched it within the last week, and I'm like, oh, that's right. I forgot. It's okay. So Angels Were White's an incredible film that we will be talking about later. And my understanding is that it is sort of in line with her previous film in that it sort of it, – it blends thriller like genre mechanics with uh, very – uh, intense political content uh, in a very good way um, and we'll be talking about Angels Wear Light later also David Diggs as an actor and as a writer just absolutely incredible as a rapper not so much but uh, <laughs> I'll forgive it he, he can rap in all the movies he wants if he keeps it up uh, and then uh, third I would probably say and this is outside of the realm of 2018 but this was the year that I started watching Johnny Toe movies and Johnny Toe is fucking incredible so oh okay uh, Johnny Toe uh, was my personal favorite discovery in terms of just all of film time. I don't know what Johnny Toe's current career is looking like, but he's made just like a dozen incredible movies. Well, uh, thanks to our friend Al, also my current co-host with the Directors Club, Ooh. I got a chance to see a really fun science fiction film that just showed a lot of what could happen on a low budget and that's the endless which was uh directed by uh two uh real life friends uh justin benson and aaron moorhead Mm -hmm. they also were the stars of the film they they had done a couple things before this spring and Mm -hmm. resolution Yes. Yeah. Right. And I haven't had a chance to see them, but but I'm I'm looking at the ideas they're coming up with uh, for science fiction in this film and uh, how they shot. I'm like, well, imagine what they could do if they had a budget. Imagine what they could do with some more seasoning. And uh, so I think, yeah, the the endless really holds a lot of promise for them. I feel like they're, I don't know, I don't know, actually know where their careers are, but they feel like their last three films have been talked about in this way with with increasing volume. And I think they're at the point where they might do the, uh, Who's the director of? Uh, oh shit, I hate him. <laughs> uh, oh, that one. <laughs> yeah, you're next. Oh, uh, Adam Wingard. No. Uh, yeah, Adam Wingard. Okay. Yeah. Adam Wing- like they're. I think they're going to be the next that where like they're going to start getting a little like they're going to be given a. They'll get some traction from from Bloomhouse yeah. movie or something like that. But uh, I'm not. A, I'm not a fan of them personally. But they definitely idea men. Uh, for sure. Yeah, I thought The Endless was interesting. I need to watch it again. Like, there's just a lot going on in that movie. I don't know if it all came together satisfactor- satisfactorily. Is that the word? <laughs> but You weren't satisfied. I wasn't quite satisfied for some reason when it was over. But I'm going to give it another look, just because I do li- I'm do. i a fan of their previous films. Actually. I think it's worth it. It's also one of the most interesting audio commentaries oh, I've yeah. come across this okay. year. Because, because they, they are so kind of uh, being near the beginning of the cur- their career they they aren't as jaded as a lot of director mm. commentaries seem to be also they could play off of each other and because a lot of it's about how do you make a movie that looks good on a low budget it's also very interesting on a oh, filmmaking okay. level well i'll definitely check that out my choice is ari asher for hereditary Oh yeah, well I guess, mm-hmm. yeah i guess everyone's discovery did had, had he made right. shorts or anything like I before i think that? he might have okay but uh, we'll talk more about Hereditary later. I'm sure we will. Indeed. Uh, best older film you saw for the first time in 2018? I mentioned uh, Johnny Toe. Uh, he has a cop film called PTU, which I think is the greatest cop film ever made. That's right. You did make I think it, you gave that five stars. It is That is one of the very few films I saw this year for the first time that I gave five stars. It is absolutely incredible mix of 
humor and exciting action and uh, sort of investigation into, you know, Hong Kong corruption and questioning, you know, like, what, what do we need a police force for? But the thing that really blew me away about it is that it plays all of these ideas in this larger-than-life way that is it's just such an amazing visual idea I've never seen hmm. happen before. But it all takes place on the streets of Hong Kong over the course of one night. And everything is lit. The streetlights are like spotlights. Like the streetlights, I don't know if they replaced the bulbs or if they just adjusted the, you know, the exposure or whatever. But like all of the streetlights are the brightest lights you've ever seen. So people are having these sort of like Shakespearean existential dilemmas on the streets of Hong Kong under spotlights. And it gives the whole thing a really amazing theatrical feel. And it gives this fascinating level of unreality to a film that already has so much else going on wow and it really binds it together and it is i think the greatest cop film of all time not that i've seen them all but cool yeah ptu apropos apropos of nothing i had a dream last night that uh quentin tarantino came over to my apartment to podcast and he's he mentioned to me that with the death of ringo lamb i think there's a lot of other directors you should check out and johnny toe was one of them is ringo lamb dead yeah, he just, just died. a couple days ago. Oh, I didn't yeah. realize. But no just, wonder everyone I follow on Letterboxd has been watching fucking Ringo Lamb movies. <laughs> I watched a bunch of Ringo Lamb movies this year, too. Full Contact, I saw in 2017. But if you haven't seen Full Contact, that's my favorite action movie ever. Yeah. And so it's apparently my subconscious is also telling me I need to check out PTU. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. That's same uh, same school, I think. Johnny mm-hmm. Toe and Ringo Lamb sort of came up around the same time in that post-John cool. Woo sort of era. Hmm. Well, then I would like that. So I love old westerns. Sure. And as much as that, spaghetti westerns. So I found this western I was not familiar with that was made well before the spaghetti westerns came about, but almost has that feel to me. It's called Day of the Outlaw. Hmm. It came out in 1959, was directed by Andre de Toth, whose works okay. I don't really know that well. I know he did House of Wax, oh, yes. but yeah, this yeah. blows that one right away. It, it is a stark black-and-white film, all, also very low-budget. It doesn't look like you know a John Ford in Monument Valley. It is bleak. It takes place during the winter uh, in, in this snowscape and a small town, and it's about. It seems to be about ranchers versus farmers. Robert Ryan is the star. Oh, that's good. Uh, but when the outlaws come in, they are led by Burl Ives, who hmm. I usually associate with friendly Christmas specials. But he is an amazingly hissable villain in this. Also, Tina Louise uh, Ginger from Gilligan's Island <gasps> is in this as well. So what I love about this is is it's misdirection because you know Robert Ryan who's amazing always is always. is heading into this thing seeming to be the heavy but then once worse heavies come to town there's a lot of moral ambiguity and that just fuels that's just fueled by the uh photography of the snowy uh this the town and and the snowscape and when they get into this kind of wilderness situation, you're just like, wow, this is getting a lot more real than most 1959s westerns let themselves be. It went, what, uh, what caused you to watch it? Well, it had been recommended uh, to me a lot. I uh, used to belong to this forum called Mubi before it uh, went defunct. The okay, uh, streaming right. service oh, yeah, is still yeah, out yeah, yeah. there, but uh, sadly, they. Uh, uh, 
disowned their forum. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And people are constantly trying to bring up things that aren't the obvious choices, but you should get to it. And I kept saying, well, that's one I should eventually get to. A little harder to find, not available on Netflix, uh, but I did find it at uh, Facets, one of our local uh, uh, video stores. Mm -hmm. I'll definitely seek it out. Yeah, it's just, if if you want to kind of, it seems like an exact mixture of the 1950s traditional style Western with elements that Sergio Leone is going to bring in Mm. in just uh, within a decade. My answer is the most obvious cliche thing I could say. But I finally saw this movie you may have heard of called Lawrence of Arabia on seven, in 70mm, finally. Uh-huh. That one's going to be difficult to beat. <laughs> well, it's just, it, it, I mean, it took me forever to see it, and also I know it's played the music box at 70mm in the past, mm-hmm. but this is the first year I finally caught up with it, and I just, it's just one of those must, it's almost like when you see 2001 on the big screen mm-hmm. in 70mm. It's a, it's a must-have experience within your life. Except the funny thing about Lawrence of Arabia as opposed to 2001 is Lawrence of Arabia has all of these other amazing qualities that have nothing to do with its epic scale. Yeah. Like, it just tells an amazing story with, like, an amazing central character, and there's just all these little beats For that sure. works. So, like... There's a lot of epics that don't live up to the hype. I saw Bridge yeah. on the River Kwai for the first time this year. I do not like that movie very much. <laughs> like, like, there's a lot of big movies that, you know, it's easy to tell someone, oh, you got to see it in 70 millimeter. Like, 2001 A Space Odyssey, absolutely incredible movie, but, like, not a surprising movie. When you see it, you'll go, yes, that is great in the way that everyone acknowledges that it's great. Lords of Arabia was a surprising yes, movie the first time I saw it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. But also, honorable mention to. Uh, seeing Nicholas Ray's Johnny Guitar. Oh, wonderful. Uh, at the, at the, uh, yeah, the music <laughs> box. It was like a mat- one of those matinee. I think it was 70 millimeter. Or maybe it wasn't. No, it probably wasn't. It was 35. Yeah. It was 35. Yeah. Um, but well, yeah, it was. I mean, the colors popped, and watching Joan Crawford kick ass is just such a joy, such a delight. <laughs> um, it's, yeah, but it's just like the interactions between all the characters in that film, too, really, you know, early on, once everybody's starting to get to know one another in the saloon and things like that, it's just. Like Nicholas Ray really knows how to capture tension between these contrasting personalities so well in all of his films, but that one, it was just such a joy to see on the big screen. I was like, I just want to watch every Nicholas Ray movie on the big screen. He's one of my favorites. So yeah, it's worth it. I mean, Johnny Guitar has such great allegory and mm-hmm. gender swapping. Yeah, and, yeah, no, that's and, and it does what's completely unexpected. Right. And and Lawrence of Arabia. I mean, what can I say? It's it's basically in my top twenty-five of all time. Yep. I think. Yeah. Peter O'Toole gives one, you know, one for the ages. Yeah, you know what those two movies have in common? They're both very queer. <gasps> so that that that's also oh, not too shabby. Okay, yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> all, right, all right. So I mean, that's that bridges right into would you, our. Would that most, be your best theatrical experience? Yeah, as well? I, I would say so. And I, I also thought like there was this series. I think you attended it with Regina. The series of short films at the Chicago International Film Festival. Mm-hmm. Um, that was an experience just because the person next to me was like the whole time. Oh, the experimental and, shorts? Yeah, just like, what? 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 Like they thought they were going in to see a, a fucking Mission Impossible movie? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> they were just like, what What was the point of that? What? Like just their reactions <laughs> next to me was just as entertaining, but like in a completely different way. Sure. these are all really meditative, very slow, mm. experimental like shorts. Like the new... Ad- 
Ajipong Weird Chickathol. Was it Uncle Joe? Yeah, we Uncle could, Joe we were allowed to say Joe. You know what's funny is Uncle Joe is the one I can never remember. <laughs> I can't pronounce one and I can't remember the other. Um, oh, I love that one so much. That's very good. Yeah. Uh, my best theatrical experience was part of the music box of horrors. Um, I stuck through the entire time. I sort of passed out a little bit during uh, Sleepaway Camp 2, and I was sort of not really there for Body Melt. But I did get to see the the second-to-last movie they played on the big screen, and this is really, I think, the only way you can watch this movie, Wicked Wicked. Uh, have either oh, of you seen right. Wicked Wicked? No, I haven't. I wish I'd been there. For so, it. Wicked Wicked is a film that plays out entirely in split screen, right. which sounds like a fascinating, super formalist, De Palma esque sort of like uh, self referential uh, meta kind of thriller because it's it's a, it is a seventies film. It came out around the same time as like Sisters mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But it is in fact the most banal, mundane. It it is like. Okay, so if you've seen any of the airport movies, it is like airport except about hotels, but it's like if that movie had Psycho bolted onto it. Oh, weird. Most of the movies doesn't really make fascinating use of split screen. Most of the movie is just like they shoot two angles at once and they just have them both on screen. Or like there is a little bit of the sort of Hitchcockian sort of a thing where like they'll have two people having a conversation on one side of the screen and they'll have someone like watching them from afar and the other but like it's not it isn't like the scene in sisters it isn't like when De Palma does split screen it isn't it isn't really a super well-made movie but what it is is baffling because Mm. it's it's a choice like to make a movie like that is so difficult and so disorienting like it's a choice that is very anti-commercial but the material is like the worst airport paperback commercial thing ever it is it has a very odd sense of humor like it kind of like parts of it feel like it's trying to be a legitimate horror movie, and then parts of it feel like it's the Gong Show. Like the two, like two main char- like two main characters uh, have a on again, off again, like sort of tumultuous relationship, and they consummate it. And then like they consummate it in the presidential suite where there's like a picture of Teddy Roosevelt, and like after they've done it, the picture has changed where he's like giving thumbs up, and like there's just a lot of really weird material. It kind of almost feels like Herschel Gordon Lewis, like some of the wow. gore and some of the huh. camp. It's such a bizarre movie, and had being on so little sleep and seeing that sort of movie on the big screen, which again, like a split screen movie, that's the way you want to see it. Like, there's an organist who is just who just has like a book of the score of the film open and is playing it. So, it'll, like sometimes it'll just cut to an organist playing the score. Like, it's so bizarre, and it was so inexplicable. And I loved every second of it. It's not a great movie, but if you can find yourself in that exact context, you should watch it that way. <laughs> and the best, the best moment of the music box of horrors for me was hearing you applaud during the uh, the, the shot in the keyhole at, at op- in opera in Dario Argento's opera. That's my. That's I'm not a big Dario Argento <laughs> like, fan, but that's like, the, like yes. That's the best moment in his entire filmography. You're probably right. Nice. <laughs> So, yeah, I was thinking about some of my favorite films for this category, but then I realized it might actually be from one of my least favorite films of the year, but still a great theatrical experience because it's Neil Young's film Paradox, directed by his now wife, um, Daryl Hannah. And Neil Young is one of my musical heroes. I I adore his work. 
his filmmaking, which he actually has a few, uh, not so much. They're they're just not movies I can really. And these aren't concert into. films. They are not. In fact, the, the, I would recommend uh, a Neil Young concert film, Heart of Gold. That's sure. yeah. amazing. Jonathan Demme. This is not like that at all. This is kind of a weird sort of Western, but not really. Willie Nelson shows up randomly. And, what uh, year is this from? This year, 2018. Okay, wow, okay. Yeah, I didn't know. And, and so why am I bringing this up? is because Neil Young was there at the screening, at the music box, and I'm like, okay, this movie's no good, but there's Neil Young right there, and so I need to be right here. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And it also uh, has another great quote of uh, of a movie this year, uh, probably the best thing about the movie, in which one of the characters says, love is like a fart. If you've got to push it, it's probably shit. Okay. Yeah. Oh, all right. Does Willie Nelson say that? <laughs> Willie Nelson doesn't say much, but his sons are in it too, and uh, they, they they sing a lovely version of "Angels Flying Too Close to the Ground." When you when you said that when you when you did that quote, I imagined Willie Nelson saying it. It's but uh, yeah, that sounds that that sort of thing sounds fascinating. Anyway, like they have enough money, they can sort of just produce their own weird little films, and it's just like, yeah, Willie, get out here right. with your sons. Your sons want to be actors. Go it, ahead. It's like, just completely self indulgent. Yeah, and you know, it's it's a guy who is instinctively a genius musically, but he still has these film ideas. And there are moments where it's like, oh, that's kind of cool. But then you're watching as a whole, and like, yeah, no, none of this really makes any sense. And you know. Yeah, I've been curious to see Journey Through the Past just because that song was used in Inherent Vice and I'm mm-hmm. very curious about like what yeah, what would a Neil Young directed movie be like? And I know I think that, that might be more of a music documentary of some kind, but I do love that song that's used in Inherent Vice. Mm. Very interesting. I had no idea he put out a movie this year. Um, and I do want to just spring this on you guys. If you guys don't have an answer, that's fine because this wasn't on our list originally, but like I was I was curious what your most disappointing film of the year was. Uh, Annihilation. Annihilation. Yeah, I, I I keep going into Alex Garland movies thinking, okay, maybe I'll click with him finally. And so you didn't like Ex Machina. That I didn't much, like Ex Machina, but you were still disappointed by Annihilation. Yeah, I was just because like again, high expectations. Everybody's saying it's amazing and one of the best films of the year. And but they said yeah, that about Ex Machina, and you didn't like that. That's one. true. Okay, interesting. No. I'm just like I, I like. I, I, one script of his I love, and that's Never Let Me Go. Mm-hmm. And that's probably the only thing of his I really, really love. And at the same time, I was going into this thinking, okay, maybe this is it. Maybe this will be the Alex Garland experience that I've been hoping to have for a while now. And once again, I was like, hmm, didn't, no, didn't click with me. I'm on the it. same boat with, with you on that. I know Annihilation gets a, a lot of love. I thought it was all right. I didn't yeah. think it was transcendent. In any way, and, and I didn't really think Ex Machina was either. Yeah, I'm exact same place. Um, for me, most disappointing was the death of Stalin because I absolutely love Armando Iannucci. I love like Veep is just one of the greatest TV shows of all time. For some reason, I, I thought you liked it. I loved In the Loop. I didn't. I it was fine. It was yeah. okay, but I was like. Okay, I haven't really seen many good comedies this year, but at least there's an Armando Iannucci movie with like Steve Buscemi and Michael Palin in it. Like fucking a, yes, this is totally up my alley. <laughs> I don't allow myself to get my hopes up really ever. Like I'm very cynical, and I tend to assume even directors that I love films from that their next one will disappoint me in some way because that's just 
generally how it goes. So like I this is the one time I let my guard down and was really like, yes, all right. And like part of it could be just like I'm an idiot and I'm uneducated. So like those are all real historical characters that I know nothing about and I know nothing about that era of the USSR or anything like that. So like you know, maybe to someone who is understands what's going on, it was a lot funnier, but I just thought almost all the jokes fell flat. Um and I was, that was pretty funny. I was it was it was it's fine, but like when when the expectation is veep, fine is majorly disappointing. Yeah, and, and also in the loop, which I think is probably the funniest movie of the last ten years. Yeah. And this I didn't hate it, it had its moments, yeah. but it, it certainly did not rise to that in the loop level. I also think Creed two is massively disappointing. <laughs> I thought that movie was really half assed. Yeah. yeah, I liked it. Yeah. I, I mean I, it's I a boxing movie. I like all boxing movies, but like compared to the first Creed, like I thought it was. It's just definitely a disappointment so compared to the first Creed. Yeah. yeah, I would say. But I don't think I went in knowing it wasn't Ryan Coogler. I think mm. that was my problem. Yeah. Oh no, he did a much better job with the boxing matches in the in the first Creed. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you grow up loving Star Wars as much as I did, and mm. having to deal with everything that came after the the original tri- trilogy, in which they they really may as well have stopped but they all had their moments the prequels all the uh criticisms of them are valid uh same with force awakens last jedi they all have their moments i think to one extent or another there's redeeming qualities there's things that are terrible there's things that work and you kind of balance it and end up having like a dopey good time but solo just sucked yeah that was so unfortunate. I, I mean, again, on a basic filmmaking level, the thing's not even lit well. There are scenes that you just cannot see what's going on. And then what it wants to emphasize, it's goofy. It uh, is goofy. It is goofy, but it's, it's goofy in a way that isn't Star Wars goofy. And I don't even think it, it, it is the way Lord and Miller would have made it goofy if their uh, oh, film was allowed, allowed to stand. Yeah. But, you know, everyone's criticized the moment, but but where they have to explain how Han Solo got his name, how he got his blaster, all these little nerdy bits that don't really matter on a storytelling level. And, and then, you know, there's nothing... I mean, I guess the... The train hijacking sequence is pretty impressive. Oh, that was cool. But, you know, aside from a scene here and there, I, I just found nothing to bring me in, which and it, it puts it, for me, even below all the other Star Wars-related uh, projects. Even more than Attack of the Clones? and Phantom Yeah, I, because here's the thing. Attack of the Clones had that uh, terrible script and, and a love story that mm-hmm. was really... No chemistry, not working. But it also had that great extended action sequence at the end to bring me back into it. And there was no equivalent in Solo for me of that. I always walk into any new Star Wars movie just like, eh, maybe it'll be fun. And I thought Solo was kind of fun. Mm -hmm. Like, I rolled my eyes a lot in some of the things that you're pointing out. I'm like, yeah, that was really cheesy and ridiculous. But I I guess I get just a joy when Donald Glover shows up. You know, I think... I think he's, you know, he's, and, and Alden Ehrenreich was fine. I felt like, I don't know, part of me wants to champion that guy based on, you know, what how great he was in Hail Caesar, but, mm. 
you're right. It's not anything special in terms of the Star Wars universe. But then again, I don't have a whole lot invested in the Star Wars universe to where I always walk into something going, yeah, maybe it'll be fun. Maybe I'll enjoy myself for two hours. And I guess I kind of did. But and my thing is, I keep coming back. I keep. It's like I'm like Charlie Brown with the football. It's like, oh, yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, make yeah. another great one, please, yeah. please. Yeah. Or just just make one I don't hate. <laughs> and, 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 and like, it's fair enough. Like. I thought Last Jedi was really good. Like, I thought, the, uh, I don't know yeah, how you land on that, but, like, I was like, oh, maybe they're going to do something interesting. Like, they're not, like, Last Jedi was not so precious. Uh, I mean, I I would never, ever walk into anything Ron Howard directs with any expectations whatsoever, <laughs> but, oh, like. Right. I forgot he directed it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's so yeah. forgettable. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I, I actually liked The Last Jedi. I yeah, thought yeah, no, I did, too. It went too long, and there were oh, some pa- pacing issues, but yeah. all in all, I thought it, w- it was really good. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right, so that does it for the categories. Do yeah. you guys want to take a break? Well, Whoa. yeah, let's do that. Yeah. All right. Okay, we're back on the Directors Club podcast. And what we're going to be doing right now is we're going to be running through our honorable mentions, kind of. It's uh, our numbers on our list. It's number 25 through 11. Um, Films that didn't quite make our top 10 list, but are nonetheless at least worth a mention. Indeed. Um, I'll run through mine first. Uh, my number 25 is Optimism, which is a short film by Deborah Stratman. Deborah Stratman directed my favorite film of, I can't remember which year, but Illinois Parables. Uh, was my favorite film of that year, uh, and it's and this is not nearly as good as Illinois Parables, but it is a really interesting uh, sort of experimental documentary. Um, and it's if you can find it, you know, like find the find. Just yeah, like finding Deborah Parables. Stratman movies is very difficult, and this is no ex- this is no exception. But uh, it's good. Uh, my number twenty four was Heavy Trip, which is a very heartwarming Norwegian de- uh, black metal sort of coming-of-age comedy. It's not as good as something like Hunt for the Wilder People, but it's in that same ballpark, and it's good, notable in that it's a movie about heavy metal that instead of being about, like, demons coming to life or something like that, it's just about the actual truth of heavy metal, which is, like, people who love metal are just dorks who have found something that makes them happy. <laughs> so it's kind of sweet and sweet-natured the way I would, like, a Taiko Watiti movie would be. Um, it's worth a uh, check out. Uh, a Star is Born uh, was a very surprising movie. I think there's a lot of sexist bullshit in it as far as its general disinterest in Lady Gaga's character. Um, she kind of only exists as far as how she reflects Bradley Cooper's sort of lifelong struggles. Yeah, that's what And I thought the does. ending like needed another 20 minutes to make any sense at all. But they're, Bradley Cooper's a really interesting director, and I think the performances are all really good. Um, yeah. My number 22 was Halloween, which is like 45 minutes of an amazing slasher movie that is sort of bookended by a lot of bullshit, but I like slasher movies, and that had a lot of really good material in it. Um, and it's as far as, you know, Halloween, bringing back Halloween reboots, remakes, whatever, like, it certainly has been done worse, but it's also been done better, because it's basically the same plot as Halloween H2O, just not as good. Uh, my number 21 was The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is the Coen Brothers' new film that's on Netflix. It's very sort of underwritten and half-baked and uh, kind of feels sketchy, but it has a good through line, and I think uh, some of the stories are very good in it. My number 20 was Mission Impossible Fallout, which is just an absolutely impeccably directed action movie that unfortunately just had no personality or character to me. Um, there was no real joy of discovery the way I have with something like John Wick 2 or something, but mm. I did think it was very very well made, and I enjoyed it. 
Uh, my number 19 was Hold the Dark, the new Jeremy Saulnier movie. I didn't. Oh, yeah. I'm like one of the few people who wasn't that into Green Room. So for me, this was like a return to form. Um, it, in that it is just a super massive bummer, <laughs> and it's also tense and exciting. It like it's it kind of strains credulity in ways that his other movies. Well, I guess Green Room for me strains credulity, but like it it overreaches. But I think it's very good and worth seeing. Uh, Unfriended Dark Web is my number eighteen. Uh, I love Unfriended. It's like I just absolutely it's one of my favorite horror movies of the past ten years. And this movie has almost none of the things I like about Unfriended, but it is scary, which the first Unfriended movie is not. No comment. Yeah. Um, I think Unfriended Dark Web is just really mean-spirited and nasty uh, in a way that I found very appealing. My number 17 was The Secret Papo, which, uh, full disclosure, is... Ah. Direct, written and directed by my friend uh, Sean Pierce. Sean Pierce and uh, uh, and his two compatriots, uh, Punctuation Films. Sean Pierce has been on this podcast, uh, and I made a film with Sean Pierce uh, last year. That's right. Uh, actually, two years ago now, since we're recording this in 2019, I made a sh- uh, film with him in 2017, and I got to see this, and I really like it. It's sort of like Tim and Eric meets The Long Goodbye. But it's not <laughs> shitty the way Tim and Eric can be. It's a good description. It's very sincere. My number 16 is The Favorite. Uh, I think it's really good, but I was also just disappointed because Killing of a Sacred Deer was my favorite movie last year. And this feels a lot more conventional. And it this honestly was like the Armando Iannucci film. The better <laughs> like Armando <laughs> Iannucci film than Armando Iannucci's actual movie. Um, and I kind of like it in that way, but it... Is not nearly as fascinating as stuff like The Lobster and Killing of a Sacred Deer. Eh, I think it's kind of fascinating. Uh, my number fifteen was Game Night, which is just uh, an amazing yeah. comedy and a good reminder that, like, oh, that's right, comedies don't have to be just sort of a mess of badly improv scenes and celebrity cameos sort of smushed together the way that so much mainstream comedy is now. Uh, I thought Game Night was just really good. My number fourteen was Support the Girls, which I think I'm probably underrating, um, but I again, I think. I think I will always be disappointed by Andrew Bujowski movies that aren't computer chess, and I don't think he can make computer chess again because no one can make computer chess. So, like, that's just an unfair hurdle. Uh, but I think that's a really fascinating movie on top of being a good, satisfying comedy. Um, my number 13 was Suspiria, which is a film I thought was really interesting and I really enjoyed, and I thought the way it merged a sort of grounded historical reality with its surrealism was very effective and I thought it was pretty scary which is always a plus my number 12 is You Were Never There or You Were Never Here You're Never Really Here which I think is the most disposable like I'm so over the story and the characters and everything the movie's about it's just this sort of uh, annoying taxi driver rehash, but I think the way it is directed is absolutely incredible. Yes, um, and I think like every single scene, there is some choice that Lynn Ramsey makes that is surprising and interesting, and it's constantly disorienting. And yet, it all every choice she makes is in service of the story. It's like this weird uh, sort of paradox that she somehow does, and I think that's incredible. I will also say I'm like this close to never wanting to see Joaquin Phoenix give a performance like this again. Like I, this was the one where I was just like, all right, get it fucking over yourself. Like I can't take this anymore. And the next sort of mumbly, inexpressive, inarticulate Joaquin Phoenix performance I see is probably going to be the one that breaks me. And my number 11 really fucking kills me that it couldn't get number top 10 because it is the best slasher movie I've seen in like the past decade. 
and it is a movie that no one else likes, and I wish I could put it on my top ten so people feel the need to see it, even though I think it's going to be a situation like the Black Christmas remake where I'm just out of my mind and I'm the only one who thinks it's great. Uh, this is better than the Black Christmas remake. It is Hellfest. It is, it ha- it is a really good slasher in the mold of the sort of post-Scream era. Not in that it's a whodunit, but just uh, sort of in the feel and the characters, except that it's really brutally violent in a way that is it sort of holds back on and it shocks you when, when it comes. Like, you don't expect it to go for the shots it goes for. And it because it takes place in this sort of, like, not scary farm, sort of, you know, uh, mm-hmm. it's like this traveling carnival of haunts and stuff like that. It has all of these tiny little scary set pieces in it that work on their own, but also there's a level of safety there because you know that characters aren't actually in danger from a haunted house. They're in danger from the guy who's trying to kill them. Um, I, it was a movie I had no expectation going in. I literally liked one of the actors from their performance in the Scream TV series, which is a bad show, but I liked it anyway because it was a slasher C- TV series, and I liked them in it, and they were in this, and they're bad in this, but the rest of the movie was great. So Hellfest, really worth seeing, even though you won't like it probably. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a good nail, there's a good nail-biting moment involving a guillotine. I, I think of. there's like... A uh, dozen good nail biting moments, but sure. It, it, no, I I liked it. I yeah. I'm not over the moon the way you are about it, but I certainly enjoyed I just, it. I just never ever expect to see an unreconstructed slasher movie. Like this movie works as a slasher movie the way movies in the early '80s worked as slasher movies. Yeah, it's not self referential. It's not trying to be too clever. It's not trying to like marry it with like heavy themes about you know sexual harassment or whatever the fuck <laughs> Halloween thought it was trying to be about. Like, it is just a really well-made meat and potato slasher movie. I give it credit for not having that, anymore. yeah, that, like, meta self-awareness factor going in. I was like... Because I think um, there's another one, Bloodfest, mm-hmm. that might be in the same category, but it, I'm pretty sure it does have that yeah. self-awareness because, surprise, surprise, one of the characters works in a video store. Okay, yeah, so, sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I just, I just loved Hellfest, and you can. Yeah, thank you, thank you for the permission to love Hellfest. <laughs> yes, Brad. Let's All go right. with you. Well, uh, my first couple, I've got uh, some caveats for, sure. but uh, they're uh, they deserve a little credit for what they do right. Uh, Twenty five, uh, first man. It's got some great scenes. Space travel is an endlessly fascinating. Subject for a film, as anyone who has seen the right stuff can definitely attest to. This one is a little too tied into what it perceives as, as the lead. Uh, Ryan Gosling's primary conceit is that he's just this really moody, down, disturbed guy who it, it does his job well but can't really function. And the movie kind of takes over take takes some of those traits a little bit too much to heart and makes it yeah. kind of a tonally weird one. It is. But once it actually gets going and gets us into the space program, it does the the direction improves and there's some great shots, some great use of score 
And uh, it ends up being one I could recommend, but, you know, w- with some issues. Mm-hmm. And then at 24, A Star is Born, kind of the same thing. It doesn't really work as a whole for me. The switch of Bradley Cooper's character from being completely in love to being just a, a jealous maniac is too abrupt. He's already so messed up to begin with that we don't really get the kind of... Um, the kind of moment of change and character growth that I think this needed. On the other hand, the music was all great. Cooper and Lady Gaga both have stage presences that are really, really fun to watch. And best of all, Sam Elliott gives a fantastic oh, yeah. supporting performance as the lead's brother. So at 23, Isle of Dogs, the Wes Anderson uh, animated feature that uh, is both a tribute to Japanese cinema. The main villain is named Kobayashi, and there's all kinds of little Easter eggs to Akira Kurosawa and, and other uh, Japanese, mostly samurai films. And then it's also about dogs, and there's a lot of great voice acting and, and Wes Anderson-esque moments. And uh, there are scenes that are uh, pretty dark for uh, an animated film, but it's Definitely one that uh, is worth seeing. And then uh, at twenty uh, at twenty two, won't you be my neighbor? The uh, oh. documentary about Mister Rogers, uh, directed by Morgan Neville. And there's not much as far as pure filmmaking, but but damn, is Mister Rogers uh, a, an amazing subject to observe? And I realize now I just said damn right before Mister Rogers, which he would never have done, but. That's what made him special. There's that clip of him flicking (laughs) off the camera. Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah, it it, it takes you... I think it it goes into territory that you kind of knew was probably the case, and it shows you just how much the case it is that he really was that guy you see on, on TV. And then at 21, Mission Impossible Fallout. Mm. Uh, not you know, Tom Cruise... I don't know if there's much about Ethan Hunt I can relate to, but just as far as kinetic action, probably the best of that kind of stuff since Mad Max Fury Road. So let me get to switch my page here to number 20, and it's A Quiet Place, probably the best boo movie of the year for me. Mm -hmm. It's just its concept of requiring complete silence to not be attacked and and killed by these monsters uh, almost create suspense from the very beginning. And it's not one that transcends, I think, into some of the great horror movies of the past few years, like Baba Duke. But it is one that's just a lot of fun and delivers on the horror. 19, this was a candidate I was thinking of for Best Ensemble, is uh, Widows, the Steve McQueen film uh, that seems to be a heist movie. But if you go in expecting it to be purely a heist movie, you, you, you might be disappointed because it's a lot more character studies going on. Yeah, I was disappointed. (laughs) I'm going to watch it again just because I feel like maybe I wasn't in the best mood for it or something. Again, expectations can play. I I would say it doesn't necessarily complete all the arcs that it starts. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's There's a lot going on. on, And you're mostly following uh, this group, group of widows who 
want to take over this heist after the lead uh, husband dies. And and then there's this very interesting subplot with Colin Farrell as uh, run, uh, running for alderman against a, uh, a local gang leader. And then Robert Duvall is, is his father, the sitting alderman. And there's just all kinds of weird dynamics through that story that I, I wish it, ha- it had taken a little more time with. But still, McQueen is able to get us really into these characters. Viola Davis is amazing in her performance. Absolutely. Yeah. So at 18, Leave No Trace, uh, directed by Deborah Granick. It's, I think, her first movie since Winter's Bone. Eight years. And maybe she needs to do more of them because mm-hmm. she is really good. And uh, you have this wonderful father-daughter uh, relationship uh, between uh, Ben Foster and Thomasina McKenzie. And the... There's 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 some harrowing scenes in the wilderness where you're really fearing for their safety, but then also just kind of the way they interact each, with each other sure. makes it a highlight. At 17, you guys talked about before, and and I concur. Uh, support the girls, a great ensemble piece, very naturalistic. Uh, Patrick, you mentioned about computer chess being your favorite. Is I haven't seen that yet, but after this, I know I have to. It's and screening somewhere, right? Soon? The Chicago Film Society has commissioned a 35mm print of sh- computer chess, the only one that exists. Oh, wow. And that will be screening this month, uh, I believe, at Northwestern University or okay. wherever the whatever the name of that university where they do their screenings is. You go to the Chicago Film Society website. I'm... Um, I gotta go. You, yeah, absolutely. I love this city. Here yeah. I am thinking, <laughs> thinking I gotta check out, can check out this movie now that it's been so recommended, shout, and here it comes. Speaking of 2018 <laughs> film, like shout out to the Chicago Film Society who has just been doing amazing work hmm. this whole year and all the previous years they've been operating. I gotta go more. They are. It's so they're so great. I I don't get to go as much as I'd like because of my work schedule. Like. But they're just absolutely incredible films that they choose to put on. And the prints they find are high quality and also extremely rare to screen. And they're just a great group. So, yeah, definitely check them out if you're in the area. Definitely. And and the other thing I love about Support the Girls is its camaraderie between uh, the boss, the workers, the whole idea that in this Hooters-type place, which is, frankly, an environment we really haven't seen much on film, you know, we're, we're getting some dynamics that we don't usually see in these kind of dramas, so I really exactly. uh, appreciated yeah. that film. At 16, uh, sorry to bother you. It's uh, all right. Boots, <laughs> right? <laughs> Boots Riley, uh, this is a crazy, audacious film. It's not, it doesn't work for me 100% throughout, but you know, I talked about the, the whole white voices concept at the beginning that, that's hysterical. Mm-hmm. And they go really heavy into political allegory on this one. And uh, maybe, maybe a little too much, but still, when it finally reveals its uh, most notable imagery, it, it is notable. Oh, it is. <laughs> 15, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Oh. We have some damn good animation going on here. The, the movie is experimenting with a lot of different styles because it has all kinds of characters from different types of animation locales from kind of the traditional 
superhero mm-hmm. vision to uh, to like Warner a Warner Brothers type character called Spider Ham. Nick Cage does another Spider Man called Spider Man Noir, and then there's uh, an anime character, and the the animation is basically trying to do what uh, Ang Lee failed to do in, in his Hulk movie, which is really visually place a comic book on the screen so that you see text, you see different kinds of different film panels, stock yeah. and panels, mm-hmm. and it's done very uh, with with a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of excitement, and if you and if you love Spider Man, it just gets you deep deep into that world so that that's a lot of fun i'll stick uh into the marvel universe with avengers infinity war at 14 now uh, there's a caveat on this one if you have not been watching the previous marvel uh, universe films this will make no sense but i appreciate how marvel has been putting forward this new form of storytelling or at least mostly new for film it's something that that again is indicative of comic books in the idea of this film has been led into by about the you know 10 other films that have come previous and you get little mm-hmm. hints about what's to come little clues here and there while the best ones are really telling their own story very well but it comes together here in, in as as good as I can imagine it, it doing, especially with the number of characters in this film. And it, it expertly balances all these characters. And we'll we'll see if they can uh, keep this going through it's the pretty, sequel next year. It was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> I was surprised because I'm not a big comic book, even Marvel Universe guy, but it was... It was, it was a nice surprise, and certainly the ending is very dark. Yeah, and it's, you know it's one of those you, you know if you're going to see it or not. There's not going to yeah. be much of a question there. Uh, number thirteen is Monrovia, Indiana, mm. a documentary from my favorite documentarian Frederick Wiseman, who is also the subject of the latest Directors Club episode. If you uh, want to hear uh, Al and myself and our friend uh, Ken Silber going deep, deep into the Wiseman universe and what he's all about, please check that out. But this is his most recent. It's kind of a Wiseman's journey into a small town, Indiana, and a town that's dying, and a town where there's a constant debate between the traditions of the town and the growth that could save it. And Wiseman's style is fly on the wall. You basically observe what these, what's going on in these people's lives in uh, public places. And in this case, a lot of it uh, is death-related, including an almost uh, full funeral service. So it's very fascinating. Hmm. Then at number 12, Blind Spotting, a wonderful film that uh, I know will be spoken of uh, later on in the podcast in, in more detail. But uh, like some of the best films this year, it, it's able to balance a com- its, its comedy with saying something very important and very real uh, about its characters. At number 11, If Beale Street Could Talk. We've, we've talked about this a little before. Uh, it's oh, so yeah. lyrical. Barry Jenkins has shown himself to be this amazing talent 
between this and and Moonlight. And it was so refreshing to just see how well a love story can be handled in this context. And Wonderful. Wonderful choices. Thank you. From both of you, actually. And now you. yours, Mr. Jim. <gasps> All right, well... Let's begin. If they're not wonderful, you're out. <laughs> we don't even care about your top ten if these aren't wonderful. Patrick, if you don't think Paddington 2 is wonderful, <laughs> check your pulse. When I've seen Paddington 1, I didn't think that was wonderful. Oh, so, but, but, but this one's even better. Oh, even better? It's even better. Even better than All Right. Yeah. That's a ringing endorsement. All right. No, it's, it's, it's way, way entertaining and delightful. And it's, oh, God. I mean, Hugh Grant in particular definitely is a better villain than Nicole Kidman was in the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just, it's just, it's, it's like, you know, it makes me feel young again. But also, there's this really magical sequence that w- wouldn't be out of place in, in something like Fantastic Mr. Fox that takes place in a pop up book where the, Paddington the bear is going through the pop-up book and and imagining like all these possibilities about oh man what 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 can happen if my aunt will come to England and all the things that we could do together and we can have a shared experience and it's so delightful it's just I mean I was watching this movie kind of going this is how I want all kids movies to be but they're you know again they they cater to adults too they can really bring out the best in you and I I love this movie it's just a feel-good movie in all the right ways the complete opposite of that would be my number 24, which is Unsane, uh, Steven Soderbergh's film that shot up uh, a little higher on my list with a second viewing. I think Claire Foy is fantastic in this film. Um, I, I can understand people being a little put off by the, the choice to shoot on an iPhone. There's a lot of jarring cinematography, but I think that, again, that reflects what the character is experiencing in this um, Institution, and it also surprisingly gets very political in the same ways like uh, side effects and contagion did. Like it's a nice blending of the macro and the micro, um, and it's also just a really creepy, unnerving stalker experience within the film too. So um, that one really got under my skin more than most movies this year. Along with number twenty-three, they, this would be a good double feature: um, uh, Corey Finley's Thoroughbreds, which. Um, you have Anya Taylor-Joy and Olivia Cook um, as two very different people that become friends and have a shared hatred for the bourgeois, even though they are essentially a part of that bourgeois upbringing. But they basically have you know, a lot of issues with expressing emotion or dealing with emotion. They're essentially sociopaths who um, you know may or may not decide to plot against uh, a stepfather figure and Anton Yelchin in his final role this is by far his best performance that he's given it's very it's very different from what you expect from him and uh, unpredictable as is this movie in general it's really really creepy and uh, another promising much like Ari Asher it's a very well assured debut um, with this director so I hope people will check this one out um, number 22 is Claire's Camera by Hong Sang-soo, who happens to be one of my favorite directors, and I still have to see like 9,000 of his other movies because he's incredibly prolific. Um, right right here now, wait, right now, wrong then? That's correct. Thank you. <laughs> Was uh, one of my favorite movies of um, a couple years back. And this one stars uh, Isabelle Huppert, who shows up to um, basically come into this uh film festival i believe it's Cannes film festival and 
they sort of like have an exchange of different it's a very link letter sort of scenario where different people are sort of interacting and just having conversations with one another but they're all very interesting conversations with very interesting characters and they intersect in a very um wacky weird way uh he he really plays with narrative form and and time in in, in very interesting ways so uh, I know he's made like a couple other films that have come out this year that I, apparently are even better than this one, but this one is like pretty much an hour long and it's put a smile on my face for the entire film. As did uh, my number 21 choice, Game Night. Uh, just ridiculously fun and funny. I really do think um, the, the star of the show is Rachel McAdams here. I think she's her timing is just beautifully um, realized, like to the point of like, I was thinking of, uh, you know, little Catherine Hepburn, such as something like back in the old screwball comedy days. Like, she just really had a naturalistic approach to these really um, insane circumstances. And just one of the most pleasant surprises because, you know, we get a lot of these movies like, you know, your, your blockers or, you know, whatever, and this one actually made me laugh on a consistent basis. Uh, number 20, Suspiria. Very scary. Yeah, very scary. And <laughs> very creepy, but also we... We did a whole episode on why it's so great, in my opinion. I think the score, the mood, uh, just the, the 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 fast zooms, just the incredible dance choreography, uh, and just a, a lot of interesting choices. And as we mentioned, just not completely remaking or even going anywhere near Argento's vision was a brilliant choice. It might be a little long, I will say that, but it's really effective. I think it's a really special horror remake. Uh, number 19 is a movie that not a lot of people are talking about anymore, and I just think it's uh, it's a special film because it was one of the biggest surprises for me, and that's Jason Reitman's Tully. Um, I'm a huge fan of young adults, and I thought this one really made you feel a lot of empathy for, for mothers in general, and in terms of Charlize Theron is kind of um, being... You know, once again, like a really imperfect character in the same way that she was in Young Adult, but in a very different context here, and just struggling, um, you know, with mental stability while being a mother. And so she hires a night nanny pl- with, uh, played by Mackenzie Davis, and they slowly develop this really offbeat, interesting relationship that may or may not be healthy, you sort of find out as things go on. But I just think Diablo Cody is a really interesting screenwriter. She remains. Like, um, you know, someone I always look forward to hearing from in general as a writer. And I think just her, Reitman, and Theron together are, is just a, a dynamic team. And they really bring something interesting to this story. Even if a lot of people have reservations about where it ultimately ends up, I think it's great. Uh, number 18 is Cold War. Uh, it's, I have a trouble pronouncing his, uh, his name but it's Pavlovsky or something, I think. Um, but he did Ida, and it's a, it's a movie about... Oh, it's the Ida guy. Yeah, it's the Ida guy. All right. Is it in 3-4? Three, 4-3. Four? Four, three? Four, three? Oh. Yeah, it's in 4-3. All right. I probably yeah. won't see that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember you asking me, like, why did you like the cinematography in Ida so much? And I couldn't really comment outside to say, I just like the aesthetic. I think it's cool. Mm-hmm. I think this time... The cinematography is used to mirror like the sustained tension between um, just the epicness of what they're feeling, like this overwhelming love that two characters are experiencing together, mixed with incarceration, like this the the overall you know bearing weight of communism weighing down on this country, 
is sort of um, you know captured in this in this framing choice but also you're experiencing this overwhelming love that these two people feel and it's fueled by music. So that really helps for me in general. It's like I, I responded to this kind of love story and it's really beautifully done. Uh, the lead actress, Joanna Kulig is just remarkable in this and it has a short running time and I felt it ended a little abruptly, but I really like this filmmaker a lot. <clears throat> Number 17, uh, another great screenplay is uh, can you ever forgive me? Which I think the interplay between Melissa McCarthy and Richard E. Grant is just delightful. Uh, and we get to see you know, McCarthy really stepping up to the plate in terms of dramatic uh, work here. I mean, she really carries every scene with you know, like a, a melancholy, but also that sarcastic biting humor that you would come to expect from her. Like She's really a caustic character, but it's mainly fueled by the fact that she's really insecure and struggles with being sociable and and it sort of plays out in this choice that she makes to um, basically forge letters from famous authors and sells them to antique collectors. And uh, she may or may not get caught. It's just a really interesting uh, character study about this real woman. Um, and she also has a very interesting relationship with cats. So that helps for me. It's a big plus. Um, so uh, we talked about, I won't go on and on about this one, uh, Support the Girls is my number 16 because... We all love it, and we all talked about it, and I also think James Legro is great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, number 15 is You Were Never Really Here. Another one I know Patrick loved, too, and I'm glad. I I really thought, like, the attention to detail in this is really great. I mean, just, like, to, to like, highlight his kind act of, like, thinking of which, uh, what would the victim prefer, an orange soda or a grape soda? Like, just little things like that mixed with, the fact that this character has been through some heavy shit, some heavy trauma, and the way she edits this movie with like snippets and really fast clips of what this guy experienced in the past, either at his job or through war, I think is really remarkably... I mean, it's one of the best edited movies, one of the best scores. It also has a special place in my heart because I introduced a screening of it out in Downers Grove, and it was a really great conversation with the audience there. Uh, it's funny. I it's an amazingly edited film. I agree with that. Hated all of the flashback stuff, all the stuff like with him in the military and stuff. I thought that was awful. <laughs> well, there's, he's also I I didn't notice until I paused it. Like he was a cop at one point. And, oh yeah, yeah. And like he's he's wearing an FBI hat and it's such a fast clip, quick that you don't even notice it. But there's like a lot of interesting things going on in his past uh, outside of what he went through as a child. Clearly. Mm-hmm. And he's you know self destructive, and I think a lot of that a lot of that editing choices mirror that really well. Uh, number fourteen is Hale County this morning, this evening, which is the first of three very intimate documentaries um, that play in this like very loose but meditative manner, um, and it sort of observes this like disenfranchised community community in Alabama, uh, mainly mainly focusing on three individuals. Uh, it just they're just astonishing shots in this movie. Um, you know, again, observational focuses on just how this community can thrive and prevail in the historic South. It says a lot about um, just the African American community there, and it feels very warm. And I also really was kind of amazed at just how impressionistic it was. In a similar way, I know Bill mentioned this too. Was uh, you know, it's kind of got the Deborah Stratman feel to it, but it's more you know, just we're basically like a fly on the wall kind of experience, but there's also great insights with a lot of the characters here. 
Um, so maybe, maybe we'll talk about that more. We'll see. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> uh, next up is Black Klansman, another movie we might talk about more soon. So I won't go too on and on about it, but it's definitely you know the Spike Lee that I love that manages to balance a lot of different things and a lot of different histories, but also with the present. I mean, I think this was also... <laughs> one of the more memorable movie going experiences with the, the crowd reacting to the final minutes of this movie was pretty special and really intense. Um, and the moment that Ron confronts David Duke at the very end is one of the best moments of 2018. <laughs> it's just, a, it's an intense experience, but it's just also, um, wonderfully funny and entertaining at the same time. So we'll talk about that more. Um, number 12 is a movie called Shirkers, which is a, really refreshing documentary that's available on Netflix. It's very funny. It's very sad. Sometimes within the same scene, it's about this um, filmmaker named Sandy Tan, who, um, along with her friends, came together to make this movie right out of high school together. And it's like, it's got so many things going on. And at the same time, um, in Singapore, they weren't making a lot of movies at the time that she was doing this. This is, I think, in the 70s, I want to say. But she's just making a very hyper-experimental feature together and she wound up collaborating with this teacher professor guy who's kind of this mysterious cinephile who might have creepy intentions it's not really spelled out necessarily but basically they all make this movie together he promised that he was going to edit the movie um while she goes off to college and it basically becomes a mystery as to what happened because he never finished editing it so there's a really interesting mystery at the center of this very personal, very vulnerable story um, about this about this female uh, filmmaker that just is really a, a treasure. Like to watch her talk about cinema throughout the movie, but also just what she's put together here. It's a really interesting um, sort of amalgam of different ideas and different things. But ultimately, it becomes a really sad, interesting story and a very personal one. And those are the kind of documentaries I like. So, um, yeah, number 11 for me, uh, Leave No Trace, Deborah Granick. Great. And one of my favorite actors work today is Ben Foster. I just love everything he does. And it's nice to see him not play a villain for once. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's one of the better films about a father-daughter relationship, uh, living in very unconventional circumstances, living out in the woods, um, and sort of what happens after they're taken in and helped by the system. Um, and I just really like low-key stories, like the Kelly Reichardt kind of approach. Uh, and I don't know, I just I, it's one of the best portrayals of trying to do your own thing and live outside the system and do what you can and sort of thrive in your own environment in your own way that uh, I found really moving and really special. And not, not, not enough can be said about um, Thomas and Mackenzie in this role. It's really special. That is all for now, folks. I think we're going to get our, to our top tens now. We are. All right. Ow. Um, I think we've been going with me going first, so I can continue that if you folks would like. Why not? not? And then we'll <laughs> we'll start our list reading from our listeners as well. All right. That sounds good. Sweet. My number 10 film is a film that I don't think many people saw in 2018. Maybe they'll get more people will get a chance to see it in 2019. I didn't go to many film festivals this year, so this is pretty much the only movie this is true of. Um, but Relaxer, which is the new film by Joel Petrikas. I can't uh, wait to see this one. <laughs> yeah, so I... You can't wait, but I'm going to say, like, this is a strange movie. This is 
a lot harder to love, I think, than something like Buzzard um, hmm. or Alchemist Cookbook. So Joel Petrakis was already one of the more interesting indie film voices that I had, just, you know, quote unquote, discovered in the past couple of years. And uh, interview has, uh, I, yeah, I got to interview him. So I watched all of his films, and it was a really good experience because he has a very distinct voice. He has a very good eye for detail. All of his films take place in Michigan, and they are very local, and they're very Midwest, and they are about a very specific kind of person. Uh, this. He, he makes these sort of like dirtbag art house films um, about just lowlifes and grifters and weirdos and peoples who, you know, who are stilted emotionally. Um, and they're very low budget. They're extremely low budget films and they look like low budget films. They look like you do what you can with the time that you have, which is not much. So like... When you watch a movie like Buzzard, it's mostly handheld photography. It's digital cameras. It's available light a lot of the times. They're, the the performance uh, by Joshua Burge in Buzzard, Joshua Burge had, you might know, as a very tiny part in uh, The Revenant. Um, but other than that, he's mostly just an unknown actor from Michigan who has been in most of uh, uh, Joel Petrakis' films. Uh it's all about the performance, all about the character, and it's all about the details of this person's life. And they feel very lived in, and they feel very curated. Um, and he, but he still makes some interesting, uh, sort of bold choices. Relaxer is a wild departure from that because Relaxer is where Joel Petrakis decides to become a formalist, which if means nothing to most people because most people haven't seen Joel Petrakis movies or don't love him like I do, but like. It's one of the fucking most surprising things I've experienced all year with film. It is a super aggressively off-putting... It's it's not Freddy Got Fingered because it's not <laughs> necessarily a comedy. But if, like, if you imagine Freddy Got Fingered had genuine pathos but was about... Like if that pathetic of a man-child was in real life, who that person would be. But it's shot like a... How Shei Shen film like it's shot like Flowers of Shanghai or like Millennium Mambo where the opening shot of the film is like 13 minutes long and it's all pans and zooms and it's just one uninterrupted shot and the film is about this guy whose name I can't recall but it's played by Joshua Burge who uh, is Abby who is obsessed with beating records or getting high scores or get, like getting in the Guinness Book of World Records and the, and he always cops out. He never fucking does it. And his brother just, like, is ruthless and merciless about taunting him with this. And Abby is just, like, not all right. Like, Abby is absolutely just, like, suspended seven-year-old in a, like, 24-year-old's body. Um, and he is just, like, the most pathetic main character of any film I have ever seen. And it is about him trying to get the high score on Pac-Man... Um, so he's sitting there playing Pac-Man on the Nintendo 64, some like Pac-Man compilation or whatever for the Nintendo 64, and he can't leave the couch. And he, there's all this like gross stuff that goes into that, or it's like, how does he piss? How does he do this? How does he like? How does he get food? And it is just so off-putting and so gross, and not necessarily in like Tom Green jerks off an elephant and cum flies everywhere, but like. Just, like, really unnerving, like, grime that is so convincing. The whole movie takes place in this single-room apartment, which is why he's able to be a formalist here, because because it, it was all shot on one set. 
Um, it's really strange and it's really off-putting, but it's also so bold and so unique. And it is like to me, Joel Petrakis is the most exciting filmmaker working now. Like I have no idea where he's going next. It there is it's so it's sort of an earnest character study, and I enjoyed that. And then at a certain point, it doesn't it doesn't really signal you that it's doing this. It just kind of slides into surreality. Um, and by the end of it, it has just abandoned any suspension of disbelief you could have had, and it's just doing some other strange thing that I wasn't totally on board with. But like, like it, it is—it's just so off-putting. <laughs> and like, it's just this guy like whining into a phone because Chuck E. Cheese won't deliver him a pizza. Like, just really, just sad, pathetic bastard. And it's—I like—it's not a film I'd recommend to everyone or even most people, but. It was such a bizarre experience and so unexpected, um, and it looks incredible. It really does look incredible, and the super long takes do serve a purpose because they just – you are stuck in this apartment, and you can't leave. And even, like, the lack of edits just make you feel gross the way that if you, like, stand, spend too much time in someone's gross apartment, you just start to be like, oh, I don't want to touch any of these surfaces. Like, you just feel like everything is sticky and that there's Grimy. probably some yeah. bugs behind the couch or, like, oh, my God. And it just gets crazier and crazier. It's it's probably going to get at least on – you know, you can probably watch it on Amazon Prime or whatever on, you know, in 2019 – I'd recommend checking it out if bizarre cinema is your thing. But, like, again, it still has sort of, like, uh, honest, sincere emotional core. It's not – like, there's a lot of films that I would describe as this – as just as off-putting and gross. But they – I, like, have, want nothing to do with them. Like, the Greasy Strangler or, like, Ooh. that sort of, like, Tim and Eric – kind of like sensibility just I can't do but Joel Petrikas is getting at something that's really real and earnest and uh, I didn't catch this but my partner Regina saw this at the same film festival and we were talking about it and they were talking about how it felt like it's sort of an oblique take on sort of the Trump era and sort of conservative mindset and Hmm. sort of just like the toxic pathetic uh, sort of uh, I, it's, I, I'd, I'd want to watch it again with this in mind so I could speak more on it but it was like this was the year 2016 was the worst year of my life and none of the films of 2016 really felt like they reflected the reality of it and it was frustrating and disappointing and then 2017 was a worse year than that and it also felt like none of the films were really addressing what it was like to live you know with Donald Trump as your president and with you know the imminent extinction of the human race like just ever present and the fact that just everything's getting worse and worse and nothing is going to be done about it there was really very few films that felt like they addressed that and 2018 was worse than that so 2018 has been the worst (laughs) year of my life i fully expect 2019 to be the worst year of my life but 2018 finally was the year where i started to feel that films were reflecting the reality i was living in so that was and there is a little bit of that to relax her though it's not at all over the way that like a sorry to bother you or something would be sure um can't recommend it to everyone but boy it is something relaxer is my number 10 also i will say uh relaxer is the only film in my top 10 that's directed by a white man uh so on on the screen as well as in real life white men fucking sucked in 2018 (laughs) Do better, white men. That's my message. I actually didn't check my list to see if that how many directors are, but uh, I uh, a new 
a friend of mine, a librarian, film critic friend, also thinks it's a great film. Relaxer? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm very curious. I'm not a big fan of the aggressively unpleasant necessarily. I really <laughs> don't think you're going to like this. This really feels like it would put you off in a major way. Like if it's, it's like it's Harmony graphic. Corinne, that it's kind of thing? Not that it's too graphic, because again, it's not... It's that it is. There's no redemption. There is no. Eh, I don't like. Mind there's that. comedy. Like it's kind of funny, but it is just. It is just sort of in. In, in some ways, it is sort of an endurance test. Um, I. I just. I think that just knowing your sensibility, you'll just get really. Like to me, I can relate to a character like Abby because I'm just like a self-loathing asshole who hates myself. So like, I can look at a character like that and find some truth in it and find a fascination with it. I don't, and I, in general, like films like this, I re- I think I have gotten into that you can't get into. So we'll see if you like it. I would be. We'll see. But like, I can't wait. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think I don't think it's your thing. But we'll see. But I did like Buzzard a lot. Right, it's not like Buzzard. Okay, like this this whole thing doesn't really apply to Buzzard. Hmm. What I'm saying, like that's the thing that makes this so exciting is like it is such a monumental leap forward for Joel Petrikas that I have no idea where he's going next, and it's fascinating. Well, IndieWire called it a masterpiece. There I don't go. know. You never there know. There we go. When has <laughs> IndieWire <laughs> been wrong? <laughs> never. IndieWire is always right. Okay, go ahead. Brad, uh, what is your number 10 film of oh, wait, 20... Before we do that... Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's we have a list. We have lists. I'll, I'll start, I'll start, I'll start. Where is it? So listeners uh, of the podcast have sent in their top 10 lists. Uh, let's read all these lists, even the, no matter how they're written. Let's read them in descending order, starting at number 10. De- yeah, that's right. Let's do that. Okay. <laughs> Declan from Ireland, who sent us a very nice note. He uh, also emailed us last year. Super cool dude. And I won't do an Irish accent, I promise. Thank you. Number 10, First Reformed. Number 9, Mid-90s. Number 8, Widows. Number 7, Thunder... Does anyone know what this is, Thunder Road? I've heard... I don't know what this is about. I've but I've, it's a great Springsteen song. Yeah, it is a great song, yeah, for sure. I'll have to look into this one because I've seen it pop up on a few lists. Number six is Burning. Number five is Under the Silver Lake, which we might talk about next year. We'll see. Yeah. Number four is Suspiria. Number three is The Little Stranger, which I don't know. Anybody? No. Okay. no. Number two is Roma. And number one, The Favorite. Okay. All right. Thank you very much, Brad. Yeah, what is yeah, your yeah, number yeah, 10 yeah. film? All right. Here? So while I was just distracted uh, counting the white men on my uh, <laughs> list, I have, I have a few more. Whoever has the most many. white men loses. <laughs> well, well, That's how this works. I might have a most. I even have a dead white man. Oh, so. oh dear. No. But, oh, dear. There you did it. But at number 10 is not a white man. He is a Japanese man. This is a film called Shoplifters. Oh, wow. We have a and match. Uh, for at ten, yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, we can both uh, yeah, go yeah, over yeah, it then, yeah, yeah. and hopefully, I will not mispronounce the name Corieta. Corieta, uh, the first name uh, Hirokazu. Okay. Uh, he directed uh, an absolutely devastating film I saw a few years ago. A years ago called Nobody Knows, hmm. and I, I, I absolutely recommended it. It's magnificent, but it is. As I said, devastating. So, kind of prepare yourself if you uh, embark on that. This is more low key, but low key in in the best of ways. It's a wonderful realist film that asks the question, "What is a family?" Because it's basically about a group of uh, 
criminals, uh, pickpocketers, people who steal. Uh, there's a, a father, a mother, a sister, two, two young children who are being uh, introduced to the world of stealing and shoplifting. And I, I think as you start, you, you assume, because they look like a family, that, that they are a family. But what is revealed as the film goes on is that it's a bit more of an Oliver Twist Fagan type situation where yeah. this this family seems to have uh, gathered up people as it went on, and still there's this chemistry uh, between the members of the family. There's how they treat each other with compassion, how they love each other, even though they're raising their their children and they're participating in all these terrible uh, activities this is contrasted with the kinds of families and lives that the system wants to bring them back into right Uh, one of the children is from an abusive household so is because there's a biological connection there does that make it better than the family we're presented it raises a lot of questions and it doesn't really insist on any of them because the the tone is one that's very relaxing you know there are scenes where you do wonder oh is this person going to get caught shoplifting or not but it's so much about uh, character and and asking kind of about you know what is the way to live a life and Mm -hmm. and it's a wonderful film I really love what you had to say about just the overall theme of like what does it mean to live a life, but also building that sense of family, even with people who aren't you not necessarily biologically related to. I love that theme in movies in general, and this one is a great example of it. It's I, it's a filmmaker I'm not as familiar with, and I'm going to be now based on this film. Uh, here, like just the overall approach, and especially the way it mixes the personal with the sociological and the economical. Reminds me a little bit of Ken Loach. Um, you know, I, Daniel Blake. Was, yeah, that's a really good analogy. Yeah, yeah, and it's just like, I mean, what can you say about the last word spoken by a young boy in this movie? I mean, it's one of the best executed scenes of the year, but just um, organic and intimate and, in ways that surprised me and really enveloped me as it went on. Um, it's it's a great film that I just, I, I'm really curious to learn more about this director based on this one, so... I uh, I great ensemble like you mentioned and just yeah. mm-hmm. everything about it really really worked for me really clicked. I'm gonna be talking about this later. Ooh, All right. yeah. <laughs> okay, so we might as well read two more lists since that was both. That's true. That's true. 10. Yeah, let's let's go for it. What, what we got here? Well, we got a letter. We got a letter. Wrote in. <laughs> wrote in. The, stamped. The, the fucking carrier pigeon brought it in, <laughs> but from Nick Sansone, a talented young screenwriter. His words, not mine. And Nick DiGilio fan. Actually, those are my words. Just okay, because, fair enough. Yes, because I think he's a he's a nice kid. Okay, good. Uh, his number Off ten here. was Monrovia, India. His uh, India, Indiana. <laughs> His number nine was Green Book. His number eight was Leave No Trace. His number seven was Thoroughbreds. His number six was Welcome to Marwin. His number five was Widows. His number four was Won't You Be My Neighbor. His number three was A Star is Born. His number two was Roma. And his number one I've never heard of. What is this? Eighth grade. Huh. Hmm. Okay. Weird. All right. Uh-huh. That's pretty good. Is it? Yeah. All right. Cool. I like it. All right. All right. So my list is from Vincent who says here is a, a garbage man and a film fan. So Good this li- 
Indeed. This list is in no particular order, so I'll just read it as they come. A Star is Born, Avengers Infinity War, Black Panther, Thoroughbreds, Terrified, Won't You Be My Neighbor, Roma, Game Night, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, and Mary Poppins Returns. All right. I know the Shockwaves crew liked this movie, Terrified. I don't know much about it, but I'm curious. All right. Uh, I guess it's time to talk about my number nine, which was Steve McQueen's Widows. Um, I think think this film bites off more than it can chew in terms of um, the political content, in terms of the way it tries to look at race and corruption. I think it... I think it has very clear aspirations to be um, a sort of... It, it wants to be a capital G great crime movie. Um, and it, in doing so, it kind of stretches itself a little thin. Um, I think a lot of the stuff with Colin Farrell is really... It's not bad. None of the material is really bad. I don't think there's really a bad scene in this movie. But it just is unnecessary and not as interesting as the, uh, the uh, eponymous widows themselves. Um, the thing that makes this movie so incredible to me is it's just a fucking awesome crime movie. Like it, like all the problems I would raise at Widows, I would also raise at Heat, which is that it feels sort of like a truncated season of television where not everything goes everywhere, and there's just a lot of threads that are sort of like, really, we need a serial killer? Okay, mm-hmm. fine, whatever. Or like, like, but it it just creates a world that is so convincing, and I think. Pretty much every scene um, has something just like fascinating about it, or just an interesting twist. The the script by Gillian Flynn, Flynn of Gone Girl fame, Steve McQueen, and uh, Lyndon Laplante are is it's so good. Every every scene it go. There's a lot of you know the stock scenes that you will see in a caper movie, a crime movie, or whatever. There's always some subversion. There's some twist. I love the. Um, sort of alderman candidate showing up at Viola Davis's home and just holding the dog the entire time. But, like, he never threatens violence. He never gets aggressive. But just him holding the dog raises the tension that whole scene. Um, the Same dog from Game Night, by the way. Is it? Right. <laughs> yeah. oh, pretty good. That dog's having a good year. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Uh, Daniel Kaluuya is just an amazingly scary heavy. Like, I just... It's just a great sort of henchman character. Those eyes. Yeah. And if you just, only saw him from Get Out, then you would never even know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but it's the same. Like, he communicates... He communicates an entire world going on behind mm-hmm. the eyes. Mm-hmm. Like he, like the the reason he is so great in Get Out. He was my favorite actor of 2017. Like, and the reason he's so great in that is the same as this, which is just uh, everything is just below the surface, and you can see him thinking um, in a way that is just very impressive. I think it the style of it is really good. Like, I think it. I think Steve McQueen just directs the shit out of this. It just is exciting in a way that. A lot of action movies aren't that to me, and like it's it's vivid in a way that a lot of action movies aren't. And I like I like the setting in Chicago, like it that's good. Um, I I think all the actors do a good job. I it's like it's not a movie that I would say is brilliant. It's not a movie that I would say is a capital G great movie. But like I can't think of a crime movie that I've seen in the past I don't know how many years that I would compare to it. Like it's just mm. the best one I've seen in forever. And I just had a hell of a time. Like, for me, this is my dumb popcorn entertainment. Like, the, which is just like speaks to maybe like my sensibilities being like, for me, Mission Impossible is too slight. I need something like this 
just to enjoy on the same level I think a lot of people enjoy something like Mission Impossible. Um, it's just really fucking fun, and I really like Widows a lot. Okay. That's it. Cool. I'll, I'll watch it again. <laughs> I mean, it might not be for you. That's fine. Like like I said, this is a weak year, and I'm not, I'm not like, over the moon about most of the films I've seen this year, including ones in my top ten. So, like, I have reservations about Widows as well. I think there's some stuff that doesn't quite work as well. Like I mentioned... There's like a the, twist late in the film that made me go... <laughs> yeah, I think it worked, but... Oh, okay. um, Anyway, that was my number nine. And I guess we should read another listener list. Oh, oh. This is you, Jim. <laughs> it is. It you gotta is. Get ready. This is what we're doing. Ow! Jason Petrovsky, another regular, a big fan of the podcast, and an all around swell dude. His number 10 would be Game Night. His number nine would be Annihilation. Number eight is The Old Man and the Gun. Number seven is Black Klansman. Number six is Hereditary. Number five is Free Solo. Oh, boy. Now that is a documentary. Uh, Number four is Widows. Number three is The Other Side of the Wind. Number two is Mission Impossible Fallout. And number one, Roma. Which is a pretty good list. It's pretty good. How about (laughs) you, Brad? Should should I list it or go straight to number nine? You can do number nine and then you can read it. Yeah. All right. So my number nine is... It's the endless. Oh, really? Okay. It is. I was. Okay, I okay. really like this movie a lot. Hmm. It starts out uh, being about two brothers who have escaped life growing up in a cult, yes. and you know they have these hazy memories of life in the cult and how they felt that things were about to get very dangerous, and so they got out. But one of the brothers, the more reckless one, uh, starts to feel like there's some closure that's needed. And so he, he, he convinces the other brother that they should go back. They, they, they do receive a, a videotape right. from the cult. And they, they, they go back, and there's a lot of really interesting character dynamics between the two brothers, You know, one of whom just does not want to be there, and the other of whom feels like he might slide back in, into the cult life. And then as they start dealing with the people in the camp who are a, a pretty strange bunch, some of them more uh, friendly than others, but they don't seem to be much different than they remembered them as children. And mm-hmm. to discuss The Endless, and we have to go into some spoilers, uh, because it becomes very much a science fiction film, at some point, for some reason, it was marketed as a horror film. All of but their I, films have been. Yeah, none uh, of their films have been horror films. Yeah, because it didn't give me the the horror vibe, but it gave me more of the sci fi mm-hmm. vibe. Because basically, they're in an area where time works in different loops. So if you, um, depending on where you are, you might go back in time every ten minutes. Or in the case of people in the cult, you know, every couple weeks. And so it deals with this concept of kind of circular time. It, it's the, the movie explains it far better, better than I can, but it's a really intriguing concept. And as we see different people handling this time distortion in different way, it becomes uh, a great suspense film, thought-provoking, and, you know, finally, uh, at near the end, a great action film. Uh, 
<laughs> or not. I just say what you feel, Jim, yeah. well, instead of <laughs> feeling guilty about not liking something someone else liked. <laughs> it's cool. It's just funny that, uh, yeah, like hearing you both describe your number nines, I'm like, I should love these, these movies in theory because I love heist movies and I love all the elements you're describing. Well, in Widows endless. is like barely a heist movie. Well, that's, tr- that's <laughs> true. That's true. No, but I mean, movies that place place in Chicago that are a little bit more than just, I mean, they're more about characters. And in this case, there's a lot of things, a lot of elements in The Endless that I'm like, that's total gym nip. Like, the time travel element, the cult thing, um, and I just don't know why it didn't click with me in the end. I thought... You liked Resolution, right? Yeah. And it's a it's it's very much a a brother to Resolution. Like, if you see Resolution Raptors, you're going to be mm-hmm. like, that is literally in The Endless. Like, there are scenes in The Endless that are in Resolution... They, they so did, they're like going back yeah. in time mm-hmm. to scenes from this other movie they made, which is kind of cool, but I don't know why it didn't click with me. I'm going to watch it again because it's one of those movies where I'm like, maybe if I know what to expect. Did you find the science fiction conceit a little too much? Yeah. like. <sighs> but then again, like something you know, like what, what, what Shane Carruth did with Primer, that made my head implode, mm-hmm. but I was still with it 100% of the way. Um I don't know. I like the endless to me felt like there was a little too much going on to where I couldn't get a grasp on what it was trying to say, you know, on a contextual level, on an emotional level. It didn't something by the end, like I don't want to give away necessarily what happens, but just I didn't feel the kind of catharsis that the characters were feeling, which was a surprise. I was hoping for some more of a connection to everything that was taking place. Hmm. But I love all the ideas. That's the thing. I right, like all the I, ideas. I think the way for me to get into it emotionally was the, that it's the story of two brothers. Sure. And yeah, how yeah, do yeah. these brothers, you know, trust or not trust each other and to what extent? Mm-hmm. Uh, for my part, I will say I saw Resolution and I thought it was lousy. I thought that it was just sort of nonsense um, that tries to do something. It try like it really strains to be clever at the end, but it just it's just totally meaningless and then I watched the first like 15 minutes of spring and I thought it was terrible and I turned it off and I saw about 30 minutes of this I got longer into this this was more interesting than spring but eventually I just lost interest and I turned it off and the thing I think about Moorhead and Benson's films for me is I hate the characters they're very bro-y they're very just generic straight white dude I think their dialogue is very bad I don't know if they're it's improvised it sometimes has the feel of improvised dialogue I could see that and it like a bad improv and it just they there is a real lack of specificity to the people that are in their films that I think just totally sinks any uh, emotional involvement I could have. Um, and also there is just like, yeah, that if there's just like this weird bro quality that is something I struggle not just with their films, but with a lot of other films. And I think it's a lot of stuff that comes out of like the Austin film scene. Like I kind of get the same thing from uh, what's his name? Who did your next Adam uh, Wingard. Yeah, Adam. Like, I kind of hate his movies for a similar read. Like, I, I can't put my finger on it, and I can't actually intelligently defend it as a position of why these are quote unquote bad or whatever. But just for me, like, I, I find the dialogue in particular to be just like poorly written, and you know, I didn't even get to the premise. The premise sounds fucking awesome. Right. Like, yeah, yeah, I kind of want to go. Great premise. I kind of want to go back and just sit through it and see if like the premise intrigues me because I thought the premise of Resolution was stupid, and I thought the premise of Spring was like I'd seen it before, but this sounds more unique and interesting. Right, because the cult thing is kind of played out right. in and, the first half hour, and, and I then think it shifts. Probably yeah. 
probably the high concept that you bring up is the reason why so much of those early scenes just made no sense to me. Because I was just like watching every scene going, no human beings talk to each other like this. <laughs> None of this makes – like why would they regard each other like this? Why would they come here – like that? Like their story made no sense to me and I thought the characters were bad. And Although like, maybe you- that's explained by the fact that some people yeah. are in different time loops than others and like – they're talking to each other as if the past hasn't happened or whatever. Like maybe that then makes more sense. Although if you grew up in a cult, you you might talk to each other rather strangely. Right. But it's just like, that's a really tricky thing to depict. And I think it, they don't, I think just because they, just because the broad strokes of their writing is, I I think their writing is so broad. Like it never nails it for me. But again, I would like to go back and and actually give this a shot. Yeah, But I uh, will. Some point, you look really like nervous right now. <laughs> what is going on? Do you like? Are you are you upset? Like I got I got news for you, buddy. Like some of the shit I haven't mentioned yet that's going to be like high up in your top tens didn't make my top thirty. So like, like we're going to disagree. Know. It's okay. Oh, I know what's going to happen. <laughs> okay, you just like got you look really anxious. <laughs> I feel bad. Oh, there's a movie at number nine for me. That uh, well, it's oh, man. You want to talk about authenticity? You want to talk about um, a film that's just so real because it's inspired by um, you know real people that I mean, God, talk about the opposite of what Clint Eastwood did in his movie with um, I forgot what whatever the Paris movie that he made on the train thirteen something the Paris I forgot but three ten to Yuma. No, it's uh, three something. Ten to Yuma. No, it's thirteen ten to Paris or something like that. But he basically hired real actors that were involved in that situation. Uh, non-actors. Non-actors, sorry, yes. Non-actors that were involved in that situation. To play themselves. To play themselves like in that same circumstance. <laughs> <laughs> in the opposite approach, I mean, in just horribly executed. It's actually one of the worst films of the year. This film does it right. It's called The Writer by director Chloe Zhao. Um, and it's about a real-life bull writer named uh, Brady Jan Jandro. And it's basically um, all about what he experienced as a result of an accident he had um, while riding a particular bull. And when she learned about everything that he went through, not just on a personal level with his own experience, but just with the family. She said, well, I've got my movie. I want to just tell the story and cast all the people that were involved in basically recreating every situation, every dynamic, everything that happened. Uh, and it just, it kind of blew me away. Like the, again, non-actors coming across so genuine, so authentic and just in a way that I was kind of floored by, um, is this is this like the act of killing or something where it's these scenes no. intercut with documentary? No, it's not. Or it's, it's not, just a fictional film. It's just a fictional film, but okay. it all happened. Right, so it's no, a non-fictional no, sure. film. No, no, it's a fictional film. It's just based on a true story yes. with the real people. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, there are moments with uh, Brady's developmentally challenged sister that are just like her insights are so sublime and so beautiful and so heartfelt that it's just you know. You don't get to experience these types of people in this type of situation in a movie. And Brady's father is this really interesting character in that he is like so torn 
between being this overbearing, you know, masculine father figure that wants his son to succeed, but he's also really protective and doesn't want him to get hurt more. So it's it's just a it's a movie about internal struggle, but it's a movie about struggle within the family environment, the struggle with your friends, because you basically define yourself by this one thing that you're really good at and that you love more than anything else in the world, and then it's taken away from you. So how do you deal with that? How do you make a comeback? How do you basically you know come to terms with the fact that you are not only brain damaged, but you can't do the thing that you want to do the most in life? And you know, on a personal level, there was just a moment in my own life where something was taken away from me where I was like, I can't do this thing that I love anymore and it sucks. So I saw this movie and I really just, I, I was really moved and, and taken with this character, even though I don't care about bull writing. <laughs> it's not something, it's not a world that I know. It's not an environment that I normally would like actively connect with, but it's just the circumstances. Um, so there are just like certain moments throughout this film um, on a technical level, that remind me of Terrence Malick and just how beautiful the scenery is. I want to say it might take place in Wyoming, I think. Um, and it's just, again, an environment that I'm not used to seeing. And it's really beautiful with a lot of, um, you know, just great sunset shots that, you know, the what's the, the golden hour? Man, magic hour. Magic hour, yeah. yeah, that are just beautiful. Um, so I think she made a really interesting film kind of about... Um, you know masculinity and just and just how this character defined himself as a man by being able to do this thing and so now he sort of has to figure out what to do and you know he tries to help other people he tries to train horses and you know develops connections with horses and other people but in the end it's sort of like a really bittersweet melancholy movie about very complex emotions within a really you know normally simple story and i just think it's really beautiful i love the writer i think this director is going to go on to make even more interesting films than this uh and i I can't say enough about all the acting and even though again like i said nobody's uh you know a trained actor in any way jim were you aware before you saw the movie about uh how it was the real people telling their own stories no i i wasn't aware until after because i that kind of confused me a little not confused me but it it made me not quite sure what to how to rate the film because when i watched it i had no background on it i thought it was a purely fictional Mm -hmm. story i did had no idea the lead guy was a real rodeo rider who got injured and that all these things are uh, these these people are the real people and so i kind of got into this mode as i was watching it where there were these dramatic things that I looked at as dramatic cliches. I still thought it was really a beautifully mm-hmm. shot film and had a lot of great moments. It actually was number 26 on my list, so <laughs> almost almost made it. But but then when I watched the uh, supplemental material and found out the story behind the film... Is there it like a really, documentary on it? Or? Yeah, there's some, there, it's basically a South by Southwest Q&A oh. that goes on, and... And I'm like, oh my god, this is this is obviously not cliche. These are things that really actually happened, yeah. you know. Uh, but because my initial reaction was not to embrace it enough, it didn't quite move me in the way that it moved you. But yeah. I, I felt almost moved retroactively once I found <laughs> out about how real this was. I think I probably was moved even more retroactively. Mm-hmm. But I, I I was really taken with it in general. So. 
How about a list? Let's go for it. Uh, you're going to have to tell it. me how to pronounce this last name. Oh, okay. Where are we? Sorry. Peter. Subchinsky. Subchinsky. Peter Subchinsky. His number 10 was A Simple Favor, which I haven't seen. His number 9 was Mandy, which I haven't seen. His number 8 was Black Klansman. His number 7 was The Favorite. His number 6 was Cold War. His number 5 was Roma. His number 4 was The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. His number 3 was First Reformed. His number 2 was Madeline's Madeline, which I haven't seen. And his number 1 was Annihilation, which is a pretty bad movie. Uh, Yeah, I don't don't, don't get it. Well, we'll see if uh, Brian Tellerico can do better uh, with his list. Which at number 10 is Sorry to Bother You. Number 9, You Were Never Really Here. Number 8, Shoplifters. Number 7, Annihilation. Uh, We we seem to be in the minority on this, guys. Yeah, I'd (laughs) say so. Number 6, The Battle of Buster Scruggs. Number 5, Widows. Number 4, Burning. 3, Leave No Trace. 2, If Beale Street Could Talk. And 1, Roma. All right. Pretty good list. Except for number seven. Anyway. What are we doing? We are speaking. We're speaking. Hold on. It's <laughs> a microphone. I had a top I had my list up and then I clicked away from it <laughs> like a fool. My number eight is a very flawed film that nonetheless was one of the more exciting times I had in a theater this year, which is sorry to bother you. Um, it's a good choice. It's really the only movie since uh, um, Putney Swope that has reminded me of Putney Swope. Hmm. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. All, I am totally on the wavelength of all of its uh, sort of more uh, non-sequitur, sort of out-there bizarre humor. Like, I just, I just found this movie really, really funny, which meant a lot to me. And I do think that, you know, uh, we live in a time where unionization is more important than ever, where labor rights are more important than ever. And I think that he is on the money in a lot of things, even though uh, some of the material, uh, not so much. Um, I think it it does it it sort of falters in that it is too adult swim for its own good, and it sort of undercuts uh, some of its points uh, by making dick jokes, or you know, like <laughs> like it will just it it will just get sort of nervous, and it will err on the side of sort of an easy dumb laugh that you know will undercut a scene um like i think the reveal of uh what's her name the who's the female lead of the film I forget um, tessa, tessa tessa thompson, thompson. like the yeah. reveal of her like art performance i thought was like really dumb um and was like a yeah. missed opportunity um i think that it is it is sort of dishonest in a way that is not surprising because the reason it's dishonest is it wants to it wants to energize people it wants people to leave the theaters and feel active it has that excite you know it has that great um, the coops uh, the coup song uh, over the end credits that is just really fun and energetic uh, that is just it's like it wants you to get excited about overthrowing capitalism and in doing so like I think the ending is a cop out as to like and then we won, and we're a union, and it's like that's not how this works. I think it's like idea of telemarketing as like low wage work is just very outdated and strange. Like, why would any of these jobs be in America? <laughs> you know, like <laughs> yeah, like course. it's it like felt a little out of touch in that way. Um, but I just thought it was so funny, and I think it was righteously angry in very satisfying ways. And I thought every 
sort of further bizarre reveal of the nature of its world was was really fun. Um, it's a movie that I was really hot on when I first saw it and then just sort of have uh, grown a little colder on since, but I do think it's still very impressive, and that's my number eight. Yeah. Army Hammer is really funny, too. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Very funny movie. All right, so my number eight, and this uh, was not planned this way, but it's Eighth Grade. Ha-ha! Which is uh, Bo Burnham's uh, film, a coming-of-age story about a young girl in eighth grade. Uh, and it's, But it's a very different kind of coming-of-age story because it really goes into how technology of today affects growing up mm. in a way that it wouldn't for our generations or the, the generations before us. And so the first thing we see that this young girl who who's awkward and hasn't really, you know, found herself yet is basically putting herself out there on social media with a, a YouTube type show. And so even though she's very shy in school and has trouble talking to people, she attempts to forge these connections through social media. And you you see this kind of throughout as her YouTube show becomes kind of a, a an, an answer to yeah. what we see in her real life. Mm-hmm. And th- this th- this young actress... Elsie uh, ca- Fisher? Yes, Elsie Fisher is so natural, is, is so real. She, You can believe that she's actually having trouble in this. A lot of times you have you know, young Hollywood actors playing shy, and it's like, oh, yeah, right, you're shy. But she really does sell that. She has this uh, wonderful... Wonderfully open relationship with with her father. Well, the, her father is trying to be open. She's actually resisting. And you know, but again, as as coming of age films aren't really the, my go to uh, most of the time. But this one really struck a nerve, and I, and I think it was because it allowed the the technology part of it to give it a fresh sense of storytelling so it didn't seem like the places we've been before. So things that might have seemed cliche, like a first kiss or things like that, are told in a different context that that made me more invested. Yeah, it's sunk down on a, on a rewatch on my list. It's in my top 30. I really do like the film. Um, I think j- just in terms of its familiarity... Uh, you know the coming of age story. I felt like there were other examples, something like even something like Lady Bird that just stood out was a little stronger for me in terms of uh, of dialogue and certain interactions. But the, again, another great father daughter dynamic going on in this film that you know again I teared up especially later in the film when you know she does allow a connection you know to to be. You know, fully realized in a final moment, like when they're sitting by a fire um, in their backyard. Mm. I really love that moment. There's a lot of great things in the movie, particularly Elsie Fisher, um, and I do think it's a great film. I just uh, just felt like ah, Edge of Seventeen. I liked more Lady Bird. I liked more. You know, but it's it's still a really a lot, a lot of the points you're bringing up. I do agree with. I this is my number thirty five. This is I think Elsie Fisher is the one sort of superlative aspect of it. I thought a lot of its observations 
We're, like I think I think part of what hurts this is that we're sort of in a boom of teen movies. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. I think mm-hmm. Edge of Seventeen and Lady Bird are absolutely incredible and unique in ways that this is not. I think and like well written and directed and sharper in a way this is not. I think American Vandal is an amazing <laughs> TV series that gets at the technology intersection of technology and, yeah. and social media and like teenage life in a way that's a lot fresher without also. Like that's a consistently surprising experience. Whereas this film, like the first time she does a YouTube video that is the opposite of what she's like in her real life, I was like, okay, I see it, it's fine. And then every subsequent time, he went back to that as just like a voiceover, as just an excuse for her to just tell you how she's feeling, as if the audience didn't already know how she's feeling in any given scene. Like it just got more and more tedious. I thought the ending with Josh Hamilton was a real cop out. Uh, I I partially just because like I don't like my family like I'm not a family guy <laughs> so like I'm just like the cynical bastard who is just like all right the like the what did Welcome to the Dollhouse not need a, the a big like warm hug at the end like fuck like it's it's just not that interesting to me and I thought there wasn't any one scene that I thought was really great it's it's, it's not bad like I think Bo Burnham is not a bad director I think he has an interest in making things look cinematic at the very least which is not always true of comedians turned uh, filmmakers but like um, yeah I don't know it was just I, I thought Elsie Fisher was very good and the rest I thought was just sort of banal and unremarkable um, and oh you know except the one thing which was the uh, which is not an invention of his so I don't know if you can really get credit for it but just like the school shooting preparedness Oh yeah, like yeah, scene. Yeah. That right. scene is like that is the one thing that has is a absolute real thing that has not been really depicted on, in film that I think is absolutely harrowing. And I think if it was a film that was able to be have more bite, if it was a film that was allowed itself to be nastier, it could lean into that sort of thing. Like, what does it feel like to be an eighth grader when? Like fucking like global warming is means that your adulthood is not guaranteed. Like, like if it could actually lean into that sort of material, or you know, like Edge of Seventeen, where you know, like, what does it mean to be a teenager who has a mental illness? Uh, you know, like, what is it? You know, or Lady Bird, where it's just like the writing is so sharp and all of the performances, like every character feels so rich and lived in. Like, I just didn't get that with Eighth Grade, and I thought it was. Disappointing. Yeah, I don't think it, it was going for those kind of extraordinary uh, brushstrokes. Yeah. Uh, it seemed to me like it was trying to say, well, what might it really be like to be kind of a, an average uh, kid growing up, but someone, you know, someone who's, you know, challenged as far as, as her own self-esteem goes and personality so kind of like uh, one of the themes i think in a lot of movies i like this year from shoplifters to support the girls to eighth grade is is this kind of naturalism Mm -hmm. sure no absolutely i i just feel like in an era that wasn't this era in an era that wasn't full of actually what i find to be extraordinary teen movies like this would be more impressive like, if this came out in 2004, this would be, like, the greatest indie film of 2004. <laughs> right. But, uh, sure, just sure. because there weren't really films like this then. But, like, I just think that it has... All the things that are good about it, except for Elsie Fisher, have been better elsewhere. Um, There's a good moment where she has an anxiety attack that I responded to uh, when she's swimming. Yeah. And kind of just... Mm-hmm. I don't want to be around all these people right now. Like, that's a feeling I've, I've felt and experienced and... 
that that happened even at a time when I was a teenager. And I was like, what? Why am I feeling this way? And it's great to see that depicted in this movie. I'm sure it's been depicted in other movies, but mm-hmm. I liked it in this one. But then, like, is that an actual like? Does she have an anxiety disorder, or is that just like for that one scene, and then it's never really addressed yeah. again? Because she's in similar experiences elsewhere, and she That's never true. has another anxiety attack. So, like, yeah. was that just a contrivance for that one scene? Or like it was that's the that kind of thing that like in general put me off the movie mm-hmm. was I don't know it's it's not a bad movie by any means no but. it's good it's fine how about another list sure what, who reads this I'm, list it's my turn okay do it Mill Will wait Mill McClanahan no wrong <laughs> Will McClanahan number ten sorry to bother you number nine a quiet place number eight. Hereditary. Number seven, Black Klansman. Number six is a movie I know Patrick and I are very much looking forward to this year. It's called In Fabric. Oh, yeah, for sure. Directed by Peter Strickland. Number five is The Favorite. Number four is one I haven't caught up with yet. Let the Corpses Tan. Same. I... I started watching it on my laptop, but I fucking hate watching movies on my laptop, and it was just, I had access to an online screener, and that was the only way I could see it. I'm sorry. I thought it'd be, yeah, (laughs) how dare you? How dare you offer that to me? But no, no, like, for real, it was just like, this is the wrong way to watch this. This is a total, all this is, is a sensory experience. I should not watch this on my bad laptop where one of the speakers doesn't It's one of those movies that only played the music box for a week. And that's too bad. Yeah. Number three is another one I need to catch up with because it's making a ton of lists. Zama. Um, Have you seen that one, Brett? I did. I actually thought it was a 2017 movie. I think it made Bill Ackerman's list last year. So, yeah. I'm going to be honest about this one. I I didn't really fully understand it. Oh, okay. Uh, it's, It's very heavy art film in a historical way. And... It's not that I didn't understand. The, the plot makes sense, but kind of what was great about it was kind of escaping me. And it, 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 from what I read, it, it, there seemed to be historical parts of it that you, it would be helpful to be familiar with. Hmm. Okay. Eventually I'll see it. Mm-hmm. Number two is a movie that I'm surprised has made a list, but it's here on the basis of sex. The Ruth... Bader, Bader Ginsburg. Ginsburg. I was about to mix <laughs> the letters again. Okay, and number one, burning. We haven't been doing this that long. We got a lot to go. <laughs> Patrick, why don't you? You can read a list. Why don't you read a list? What I'll the heck? List. What the heck? What the heck? Uh, this is by Rolf Eichhorn. Great to hear. There's another year-end show. His number ten, Mission Impossible, Fallout. Number nine, On My Skin, which I'm not familiar with. Number no, no, eight, no, no. Believer, not familiar with. Number seven, A Quiet Place. Number six, L Storm, which I'm not familiar with. Number five, Sicario Two. Hmm. Number four, Champion. Number three, Operation Red Sea. Number two, Upgrade. Um, number one, Leave No Trace. And that is a good segue because my number seven is Leave No Trace. Well, I'll be a monkey's uncle. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, Great choice. I said that this year... Well, I'm sorry, did I skip you? Do you have to do your number seven still? You did no, eight grade. I, I need to do number eight. Oh, well... You do the, number eight, the then. Sorry just, well, whoops! Yeah. Well, you know Because you had me read... We were going to read one list in between everything. And I know, then, we messed up. Yeah, that's fine. I'm not going to go on and on and on and on about this one, because I know it's going to come up later, probably. That's a film called Roma. You may have heard of it. It's by this guy named Alfonso Caron. 
and he's a good director. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> I want to I hear you. I'm a fan of let's, this director. Let's see where this goes. Yeah. <laughs> he's so good. Well, he knows how to make talk. a movie. Let's talk about Alfonso Caron. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the Alfonso Caron cast. The Alfonso Caron cast is for lovers. Yeah. There's a beautiful big book that the studio sent me, which was very nice, and it's gorgeous, and it's full of still... Collusion! <laughs> <laughs> Oh no! It shouldn't have been on my list after all. I, no. I did not receive the book, so I. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, Brad has some scruples. <laughs> oh no, no! Uh, not that I wouldn't have accepted. Well, yeah, it's just nobody offered. Yeah. All right. It was. It was lovely. Um, thank you, Alfonso, for sending it my way. It's a beautiful book filled with amazing still photography. It's one of those movies where you're watching. I was like, I would love to have a book of still photography shots from this film. Because it's gorgeous. I want to put this entire movie on my wall. Mm-hmm. Every single frame, every single shot, stunning. Brad, you were right. The sound design, unbelievable. See it in a the movie theater, please, um, if you can. I mean, obviously, my mom watched it on Netflix and loved it, so that's fine, too. If that's the only way you can see it, see it. Just make sure you see this and movie. And it probably is the only way you can see it, because Netflix wants movie theaters to die. <sighs> Don't support Netflix as a distribution studio. Thank you. I'm sure we'll be talking about this one a little bit more and a little bit more at length. I mean, it's. I think people know about it at this point. I can certainly go on and on about what I love about it, and I, I'm pretty sure I can, and I will. Let's just wait. All right. I'm just going to, you know. Sounds good. I bet you can't guess what my number seven is. <laughs> oh, no. Do, do, Did you remember? You already forgot. Jim is so out of it right now. I don't know what has happened to Without Jim. Without a trace. Jim is Without like glancing trace. around this room like, like he like – he, okay, here's my guess. My guess is at some point during this recording, Jim's cat's brain and his brain switched bodies, and the cat is desperately trying to not let us catch on that, <laughs> that it isn't Jim's body. That is what is happening to his face. You thought, oh, oh, you thought it was over, huh? No, we still need to hear what Patrick's next choice is, and we need to hear the rest of our lists. Please don't change that dial. Don't turn that knob. Don't press that button on your remote control and or cellular telephone, because we'll be right back. Stay tuned for part two of our favorite films of 2018 here on WDCP. (laughs) 